How do we approach the study of Muad'Dib's father, a man of surpassing warmth and surprising coldness was the Duke Leto Atreides? Yet many facts open the way to this Duke. His abiding love for his Bene Gesserit lady, the dreams he held for his son, the devotion with which men served him. You see him there, a man snared by destiny, a lonely figure with his light dimmed behind the glory of his son. Still, one must ask, what is the son but an extension of the father? From Muad'Dib Family Commentaries by the Princess Irulan. Welcome to Spice World, an inebriated exploration of Frank Herbert's Dune. My name is Derek. And my name is Mike. With each chapter, we're going to be opening a new bottle of wine and having a bit of a buzz... A bu- a bit buzz. of a buzz book club. <laughs> oh, gosh. We did get started a little earlier this morning. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I brought a bottle of wine for us today, Mike. Um, we're meeting the Duke in this chapter. Mm-hmm. So today, we have Noble Vines. Ooh. 337. That okay. is the vine number. Oh, uh, that it correlates ask, what does that to, mean? Yeah, a very noble vine. Um, it is a delicious Cab Sauv. So we're going to enjoy that, what we discussed today. All right. And this week, Mike, we are back for kind of a special session. All right. Because this is going to be chapter six, part two. So this is going to be one of our final chapters on Kaladin. We're finally getting out of this water world. We are. And more to the point, though, we are recording this one again. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Yeah, Because okay. we had a little snafu. Uh, a little snafu that became a big snafu, which became a heartbreaking snafu. Uh, yeah, going back and forth between uh, turning on the recordings and uh, uh, scrubbing our sort of po- uh, pre-banter, I forgot to hit record. Yep. And we did not find out until, <laughs> until the we... end of the glossary game. <laughs> until we said the spice must flow. Uh, yeah, there was a celebration on a good episode. Some <laughs> high fives were had. <laughs> and then we saw what we'd done. <laughs> oh. So, uh, we're trying it again. It, you uh, know what? With with uh, When you put alcohol into this equation, it was bound to happen eventually. And there's only one way to get to Carnegie Hall, Mike. Practice, <laughs> practice, practice. <laughs> So, we got a little bit of experience, uh, and it might sound a little different in our cadence as we approach things, but uh, I think we're going to be able to still have a pretty full dialogue. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I've uh, I've pretty much already forgotten everything we talked about. That's, yeah, we've washed it out with wine. And we <laughs> yes, started a, new. a cleanse. Uh, we left off last week, uh, well, for them two weeks ago, but... Uh, we left Paul with the last of his teachers, and uh, Dr. Yui had mm-hmm. just left us, and right. he let us know while he was on the way out that Duke Leto was heading over, mm-hmm. and uh, Paul, he'd kind of gotten up for that. He was excited. Yeah. Uh, the last of many visitors for the training room. Oh, yeah. Thank God for that. <laughs> uh, you got to be pretty excited to meet the Duke. I am. I mean, like, we've been building up to this character for so long. Mm-hmm. I am, uh, I'm kind of worried, like, you know, never meet your heroes. This is going to be, <laughs> yeah. this is going to be upsetting, disappointing. I <laughs> mean, he's just not the man you thought. <laughs> Very unimpressive. Um, but this chapter, like all of them, it starts out with a quotation, and this quotation is heavily about the Duke, and mm-hmm. appropriately so. 
Uh, it talks about how we how do we approach the study of the father, and we kind of color in this warmth to him that we haven't been exposed to, where I think so far the character that's been outlined is someone who's very duty-bound mm-hmm. uh, and is always kind of working towards the building up his house and dealing with his enemies. Uh, and everyone kind of thinks there's a bit of a coldness to him and a utilitarian nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting, this quote, where we're starting to talk to him about it as a father, and it ends with this little line, uh, what is the son but an extension of the father? And I was interested in sort of uh, how that it could be interpreted. Uh, I mean, that's a good thing to bring up. I kind of wondered, I always step a little outside and want to consider Frank Herbert, like the author, in each time of this. Because oh. this is one of those moments where I feel like there's a little bit of projecting. Uh, and maybe like his relationship with his father. Um, and maybe that is sort of a bit of what he um, kind of puts into the Duke. And why the Duke is a little idolized, and we never get to meet him too close as a character. Even uh, in these moments where he's in a chapter, he kind of always does feel a little distant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or that his purpose is a little linear compared to the other characters. Um, Like, we know the track he is on. And in this chapter, you know, we're going to see him trying to make his son feel more comfortable and safe in the world. When mm-hmm. that's uh, <laughs> when uh, he's very well aware that safety is just nigh. Yeah, and we're moving into a trap, and all these things are kind of working around. So that's sort of something I, I see expressed in that sentence. And then, as for this um, juxtaposition it's setting up between this greatness of Moadib uh, mm. and how he stands before uh, Duke Leto. Duke Leto was sort of lost in the light of his son. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what Irulan's really trying to evoke there, if not just to let you know as the reader at this point, like, this story of Paul that we're on right now mm-hmm. is going to kind of snowball out of control. Right, because you said like this was uh, the most normal day he's going to have in this like yeah yeah that, spiral. the chance that we get to see yeah yeah, uh, and it's just going to get crazier and crazier. And I think maybe you consider how much you and I uh, just you know from the start of this we've built up the Duke a little bit of like excited yeah. to meet him. He's a footnote. Uh, he doesn't really matter in history. That's so sad, right? And it also makes me wonder, what has Paul done to make such an impression? Yeah, that no one calls him Paul anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's the little boy on Caladan. <laughs> well, I mean, space name, Derek, yeah. space name. Yeah, you pick up the space name, you'd be more deep. Um, but why don't, why don't we jump right into the chapter? Yeah. Then, and we'll go into what actually happens here. So this opens with the Duke entering. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get our first visual of him. This tall, olive-skinned man comes in. He's got these sharp features, um, very bird-like. We've had that hammered in from the beginning. I think every time we talk about Paul's face. I think it's whenever we're talking about an intimidating adult. It's always <laughs> like a very avian. Very, oh, yeah, because I guess guys tell him behind you those bird <laughs> yeah. eyes looking down at you. Um, we get, kind of describes his uniform, and he has this uh, his shield belt on, uh, which mm-hmm. I love that. It says uh, it's a silvered shield belt with the patina of much use, girded his narrow waist. And that kind of combination of the silver shield belt being this sort of a wealthy aristocrat's item. Right. But, but also, also well-worn. Well-worn, yeah. It's dented. It's scratched. Like, he, it's not just a sign of wealth. Like, he's he's a practical individual, if mm. you will. Yeah, and not a decoration. Right. Uh, not part of the uniform. This is a tool. This is something he's used. 
and he doesn't feel the like posh need to have like, maybe like a golden one or something right. or something more formal to verb while he's walking around. Like this is the one he's going to carry into battle. Uh, Red armorial hawk crest. Uh, that's cool. I'd love to see a picture of that. There's got, there's got to be so many different interpretations. Yeah, there are. We could pull a bunch. Uh, they got some funny ones from the movie and stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. Where they're all embroidered up in their uniforms. And uh, yeah, they, they go to the nines. Uh, now, the Duke, he's been pretty busy this past week. Mm-hmm. We know the family's been, uh, you know, moving. Everyone's been around. Right. Uh, packing you know, the boxes. Packing boxes. Unpacking boxes. Some people are already on Arrakis. That's right. He sent some people out ahead of time. Yeah. We know that uh, Duncan Idaho is over there. That's the guy, our swordmaster of the Ganas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at this point, uh, Thufir probably headed out too. Cause didn't he leave that day? Oh, I think so. Or you know what? Actually, it's we no, are we, we, saw we him are earlier today. In the day. Yeah, he's so he's leaving tomorrow morning. Or maybe he just went peace out. I'm, I'm taking <laughs> the first ship I can. Uh, but the Duke, he's been feeling tired, mm. and. More specifically, he's tired of showing that he's not tired to his troops and the people around him. Says he's filled with the ache of not showing his fatigue. He's got to set an example. Yeah. It's like if people look at him for inspiration, like he can't be just like slogging around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And that's something where I, you know, this is a family that leads from the top. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no set of expectation the Duke has that he wouldn't fulfill himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something I don't recall seeing on Gaiety Prime. (laughs) Yeah, no, not exactly the best (laughs) show up uh, in that conversation. And he asked uh, Paul, you know, how things have been going. And he, Paul just kind of shrugs. You know, he's working on his homework there. He's like, things are just like different. Uh, and they both kind of have a moment, uh, which I think is really endearing. And the Duke kind of sits down there at the table mm-hmm. and th- talks about how they're going to be leaving tomorrow. And Paul is desperately trying to warn his father um, about that warning he got. Uh, yeah, like for prior. the father, nothing. Yeah, all the, those words of uh, Guy's Helen Mahayam. But he, he can't get it out of his. Um, you know, he's turning he's the got words sort of over. That, that uh, mind control speech lock. Yeah, and I think did he he uh, burst something out when he talked to Thufir? I think he managed. No, I don't think so. I think Thufir was able to infer such things though mm-hmm. because of just his abilities. But uh, I think in this chapter, he's finally able to overcome that mind or that uh, that lock. Yeah, yeah. He kind of after uh, the Duke. Sitting there with him, he uh, it says like he uh, he forces a casual gesture. That's like when he sits mm-hmm. down across from Paul. Uh, again, that's kind of him like acting like he's not as tired as he is, even though. Well, I mean, like, yeah, I think that's just uh, also being unable to like uh, step out of your work mentality in a sense. Yeah, yeah, like it... never getting a moment. Yeah, because if he does like let loose, like if he's as exhausted as he says he is, like how is he going to get back into that? Mm hmm. And when he's ready to talk to Paul, it says like in his head, this whole pattern of conversation wells up Mm -hmm. and it's that series of lies. Essentially, he would tell his troops just to keep their hopes up or, you know, half truths, so to speak. And he immediately kind of puts them to a side and is like, no, no, I can't. I got to tell Paul the truth. Like, this like of is all the people that's, to say this to this is my son. I have to be upfront. The, yeah. Uh, you know, we know the Duke's big plan here is. He's getting everything ready so his son can be the Duke one. Right. And that's like getting a part of it. Like these truths need to be encountered and thoroughly accepted and contemplated so that Paul can make these decisions in the future. Another uh, nod to extent uh, son being an extension of the father. Yeah, very much so. Mm -hmm. I guess we're kind of seeing um, Leto make that statement into truth. Yeah. That's what he's preparing through this chapter. 
But Paul is, he's dancing around those words he wants to say. Mm-hmm. of just trying to ask him, like, did she warn you? Did right. she say anything? And Leto notices this distress in him. But he, he misreads it, though. And I think just like he would have gotten like, from uh, through fear. Yeah. And he's reading it as fear mm-hmm. uh, or that this kid is scared and worried. Well, in a sense, it is because he's uh, he's afraid for his father and desperately wants to warn him. Yeah, he's afraid for his father. He's afraid for like why he can't get these words out. Like a lot of strange things are happening, but it's also an incomplete picture of what's going on in Paul's head. Okay. We're like, I don't think Jessica would reach that false conclusion. Right. And not get the nuance of like, oh, but there's this other Yeah, but thing. That's, that's her whole MO. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not saying it's unfair. <laughs> Everyone's got a different thing, you know? The Duke is no Mentat. He's no Bene Gesserit. Like, as far as things go, he's just a good soldier. Uh, a pretty great matador. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah we'll, <laughs> that's we'll, right. We'll, we'll touch on that after. <laughs> but, yeah, he, he doesn't have that ultimate degree of perception that those other people have. Mm-hmm. Um Nonetheless, though, he is very educated, very refined, very experienced. Uh, so I do put it on. And since he's getting his information from Thufir, I do have a little higher expectation of Thufir to catch something like that. Uh, they he's should be, getting on up there in he, his age, though. He is very much up in there. He's slipping. Huh. Maybe that'll be a thing that comes up later. What? Huh. Maybe that's how... Um, we're waiting for uh, Piter to pull one over on Thufir. Yeah, I mean, big, like that's the big thing of the plan we're watching out for. Well, we know what's supposed to happen. We just don't mm-hmm. exactly know how we get from A to B. Mm-hmm. So I am curious about that. So not to go too far off, when he notices the dress, they talk about uh, how what Thufir brought up and that uh, if Arrakis is so dangerous and if we have an opportunity with the Fremen, the Duke, though, just lets him know, like, oh, yeah, yeah. There are other possibilities than just the Fremen. Mm -hmm. We learn a little bit more about Shom as well in this chapter. We do. And so this is where they're kind of like talking past each other a little bit. Right. Because while the Duke is trying to set up this conversation and he does go into a great little diatribe on Shom, Paul finally gets over that block. He just blurts it out. (laughs) Yeah. So like right as the Duke brings up that, yeah, Shom, it controls the spice. Paul blocked out like, did the Reverend Mother warn you? And his fists are clenched. They're sweaty. He's sweating at this point and just he's thinking of like the effort it took to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Now, Lido, he comes back with a, a phrase. Like, it was a little off putting. And I think uh, when you and I first talked about this, we were a little harsh on Lido. I'm reading it back a few times. I, I think he does kind of come from a neutral place as like a father talking to a son. He says, like, don't let a woman's fears cloud your mind. Now, we took that as a pretty condescending thing at first because, like, I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time Frank's approached it from that angle. And uh, I think I, I think I may be giving him a bigger benefit of the doubt than he does deserve. Maybe. But, yeah, it is a little dismissive of women overall. No woman wants her loved ones in dangers. The hands behind those warnings with your mothers. Take this as a sign for her love for us. So, like, if you discount the don't let a woman's fears cloud your mind, I think it can kind of all encompass him talking about his son, about their mother and how she feels. But yeah, I mean, I just think there's so many different ways you could approach that. And I don't know. And phrase it better. And phrase it better. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think it's anything on Herbert's part, to be honest, because uh, if you look at this universe in this book as a whole, the Benny Gesserit, like women are at the precipice of power, pretty much. They are, but they're also maligned for it. That's true. Which I think is pretty spot on for the time it was in. Where Mm. like they can get power, but they're not welcome to it. And look at the means they have to go to to get it versus the men. All right, Frank. 
Um, uh, but it was the 60s, we'll get a pass on this one. Yeah, yeah, but I do give it like the fact that there is an order of all women that are regarded respectfully, and like from our point of view, what we learn about them, we mm-hmm. know they are the ones in control. Everyone else kind of has a false sense of control that the Bene Gesserit allow you to have mm-hmm. while they dictate the actual decisions you're making. Uh, it's complicated. Ultimately, this is, again, I think a point where the uh, the Duke is kind of misreading a situation mm-hmm. uh, and that he's missing something huge here um, and that I don't understand how with the Emperor's Truesayer just showed up at your place Fairly, I don't know, maybe announced. I'm assuming unannounced. Probably the most informed person, like, around. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah. The fact that anyone from the Imperial Palace just swung by on the off chance, you really should be asking a lot of questions. (laughs) (laughs) And spoke to your son, and it doesn't seem like you or Thufir know exactly what she said to your son. Now... When we talked about Mentats and how they function and uh, how misinformation can sort of completely destroy a Mentat's ability to function. Yeah. Um, or function correctly, I should say. Uh, do you think this is a bit of a portent? Toward- uh, like, do I think this is contributing towards an inaccuracy in Thufir? Well, I mean, just sort of like painting the picture and showing that like maybe they don't have a really solid understanding of what is happening around them. And maybe that's foretelling of what other information they may not be 100% accurate on. Ooh, mm, kind of. I, I can see where you're coming from, and I guess I can't say no, uh, but I'm, I'm more like contrasting that with how much you wouldn't know about the Bene Gesserit into, at this point. And that, True. And that uh, Gaius Helamahayim is the one kind of causing this like little gyre of confusion mm-hmm. as she moves through the castle. So I'm not sure. I think it's enough that uh, her actions are so mysterious that I, I don't think Thufir would begin to know how to unravel them mm-hmm. or that he would like uh, make that into some error or something that uh, would bother him or mm-hmm. disrupt his computations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mentat, so yeah, he's he's going to have a little bit of an arc. And it, I think it is good enough to know that, yeah, he did, he did miss some points in the beginning, that he's starting to slip. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're seeing that old age. Uh, and we like we already know for sure he is tired. He looks like that beat up old uh, the training, training dummy. dummy. <laughs> oh yeah, super, what do you say? Like this is me. <laughs> that's me. There, I, there, stand up. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so that's where I think they're a little this disconnection with the Bene Gesserit and that meeting with mm-hmm. Thufir and them. It's just it's so weird for how uh, high Thufir runs on, but this gives us our little transition point to this dialogue that. Um, the Duke Leto tries to walk Paul through. Mm-hmm. So they'd ask, they talked about Jessica. Paul asks if Jessica knows about the Fremen. Uh, Cause we know like, that's what he was talking about right before the right. block. Uh, the answer Leto gives him is a little enigmatic. And he just says, yes. And about much more kind of lets that sit. Well, we haven't really gotten like a lady Jessica chapter. So I'm sure when we do, we'll start to learn a bit more about how her mind is working. I think the closest we had was the talk between her and, uh, Guys, Helen Mahayam. Yeah, yeah, that's the only experience you've gotten right up to this point. And we do get the feeling that she is very intertwined with the Duke's activities, Mm -hmm. uh, if not just because of that choice to have Paul in general. Right. Like, we knew she would cast aside everything for the Duke. Um, So they are definitely very close. And in this point in the conversation, uh, when he says yes much more, the Duke has made a decision to kind of guide Paul to this dangerous fact. That's how he says it. Well, I mean, yeah. 
Because um, he wants his son to be prepared for whatever is about to happen. So trying to sugarcoat things isn't really going to help him. No, but he does feel that this truth, though, it needs to be leavened. Mm-hmm. So, like he just like, I can't come out and say it for some reason. We have to go on this little walk through all these things. And uh, at that point, the Duke um, ta- brings up, brings it back. So Paul asks about the Fremen. And again, the Duke goes back to Chome. Always back to Chome. And few products escape Chome's touch. And we get a nice little list of uh, some of the items. I had some questions about these products. So things like uh, logs, donkeys, horses, cows. Like I can understand like basic trade and building like uh, food sources. Uh, Dung, I can see totally for like fertilizer. Sharks, not quite sure why there's a sharks. need for shark trade out there, but well, maybe there Mike, is. we have lasers on some planets, we have sharks on others. You got to get them together somehow. <laughs> That's true. We're not sending the lasers. I g- <laughs> okay, well, fine. Um, whale fur or whale? Do whales have fur? I don't whales, think whales. Whales do not. I think they yeah. have, they had a little fur on like. The no, I think they got like hair or something. They, got, they have hair. Okay, yeah, yeah. We're I guess I guess fur is technically hair, but it's not like when but I think I'm, fur. I'm I think, imagine a pelt. I think, yeah. yeah, I think patchy. Yeah. I, yeah, like there's a nice sheet <laughs> just of fur. a furry like whale swimming about. It's got to be so sad. Just, just its fins. Oh, could have a beard. It could be cool whales. Oh man. Yeah, whale whale fur, and I I believe that is a uh, a Harkonnen export. Is it really from uh, the son Brian Herbert's books? So there are a... whales on Gaty Prime, and they have fur. Yeah, if it wasn't Gaty Prime, it was on uh, Raban Lanky of Hale. Oh, right, because their house as a whole controls a couple different planets. Yeah, right? that was like that was where um, his stepbrother went to. Abelard. Right, that makes way more sense. Yeah, a few <laughs> different options. So yeah, there's. Uh, is there any other items that were on there? No, that, were, that was the that was the, the whale fur was most the most exotic one. sounding one. Um, and of course they've got like rice on Caladan, which you know makes pundi sense. rice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, pundi rice is like um, each grain is I think like an inch and a half. Uh, long oh snap that's huge yeah it's huge so it makes like it's an incredible amount of food Uh, rice is like a pill yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i guess it tastes like it's not that great the caladan is like Like it's a name like pundi it's such a humble planet where they're just like yeah we make this rice it kind of (laughs) sucks we make wine kind of sucks oh no (laughs) there's nothing they're really proud of (laughs) that's sad but it is like an amazing beach planet well that's good yeah they got that so, yeah, we have this amazing plethora of products. Every single one of them taxed by comb. If it's going to go on a spaceship, it's going to get taxed. Right. It's going to create some money. And uh, a proportion of those profits, everything correlated uh, is just a fraction of spice production, essentially. Right. He mentions that, like, you know, everything contributes to it, but spice is, like, the percentage. When you look at the pie chart, that's the big chunk right there. That's, that's the money maker. Uh, pound for dollar for sure which is amazing to think about for yeah a galactic with, trade something being that big yeah and that uh i mean he says a handful could buy you a house on two pile uh oh yeah two pile we talked about two pile we did we did that's great planet little, yep that is that little pocket or maybe more than maybe one more, world maybe, maybe. only a guild navigator would know uh, where the renegade houses are taken away so they can live happily ever after upstate, running yep. out on the farm. <laughs> uh, happy house. Uh, it, it reminds me a lot of um, the, who's in the Netherlands with the tulips and they had the tulip bubble mm-hmm. where uh, you could buy a townhouse for uh, two tulips. Wait, what? 
Yeah, at the peak of it, there is uh, this one tulip. It's white. It has these red streaks through it. Mm-hmm. And if you plant it, the seed, you'll never regrow that tulip. Uh, that really? red one, yeah, it was like random. They didn't know what it was. It is actually a virus in the plant that was giving it that. Okay. So it was just that was the most rare tulips. If you had one of those, you could get a townhouse for two tulips. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Terrible economic bubbles. <laughs> so we are in a spice bubble currently. It has not popped yet. <laughs> You can get a lot of stuff. And so with knowing that uh, the spice is such a cornerstone to the whole economy, mm-hmm. uh, we start talking about what would happen if there was a reduction in spice production. Those numbers just went flat. Right, because the spice being taxed, that tax goes into Chome, and then it gets divided amongst the houses. So, so then all those directorships get a cut. So no more... Like, less spice means a huge dent in profits for everyone. Everyone. Yes. You're bringing down, essentially, like, um, I don't know how to equate this to the stock market, but, like, if there was, like, a bond for the market itself, like, you'd be lowering the value of that. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And just, all of a sudden, your dollar is worth 50 cents tomorrow. You're going to turn and go, huh, who's responsible for that one? (laughs) And it's going to be the Duke Leto because we're getting a racket. Because he's been given a fife complete. Fife complete. So there's no one else to blame but him. Exactly. And that's part of the reason that he was given that complete fife. Yeah. Uh, yeah, You know, we're going to have to try to piece together of uh, how the Harkonnens put this plan together. I got some yarn in the back. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Get it off that wall. Put it on this wall over here. Yep. Uh, Get another board going. (laughs) And yeah, I, I just wonder, like, we know they pitched it to the emperor, but I wonder how all these pieces got together to decide, be like, all right, let's give them a Rackus as the final piece uh, to really nail this in. But, I feel like it's a Piter decision. Oh, it's, it's a, every piece of that plan was a Piter decision. Yep. <laughs> the Baron got to decide what they had for lunch when they planned the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> that was all. I'll give him that. Yeah. Uh, Paul is acutely following... Every step of this that the mm. Duke is laying out, uh, probably at Mentat speed and going without over really each realizing piece. it. Yeah. And just like living in this moment, running everything through, and then thinking about this whole course of action each time the Duke puts another piece of information down. And he concludes that um, houses would stockpile melange, right? Spice melange. If this was going to be the kind of course of action that's going to happen. That would be the only way to buffer yourself from economic fallout. And then you'd have to think about which houses have the money to do that. Right, yeah. Because, like, it's it's not a cheap product. No, no, to just put it in a room and forget about it. Yeah. And so the Lido, he's been following a few houses. And we learned a couple things. This gives some credit to, like, his strategic thinking. I I bet Thufir had a lot to do with it, but I I feel like we got to give some credit to Duke Lido here. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, I think a combination of the both. You know what? Well, we're seeing like how we see Gaius Helen reflect through Jessica. We see Thufir reflect through Leto. He drained Leto and taught him everything he knows about war. True. So, uh, yeah, the two of them together, just the you know the whip snap of youth and then that rugged experience, wisdom and experience. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's a it's a dangerous combination because it is like I love that clever little bit when they're talking about it. Yeah, we're watching. Some of them we knew were enemies. Others we didn't know were enemies. And even when he lets them know, he's like, but none of that is really important. Right. Like, don't even worry about any of them, Paul. When like, that sounds like a really big problem to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're just letting me know, like, friends are not friends. They're stockpiling <laughs> spice on us. Don't you worry about that. We'll just sweep that under the rug. Yeah, that's, that's one of the little problems. <laughs> we got big problems. And 
he uh I think he does he points out that it's the emperor too yeah uh, to and a, that's something that like Paul didn't even consider no that actually kind of like baffles him like what yeah but he does snap back and he puts together I think the most important piece faster than like I would have in his shoes oh and that's that that means they're going to be Sardukar if Sardukar. the emperor is involved there are Sardukar we actually we learn a little bit more about the Sardukar here I think we touched on it from the Dune Encyclopedia but. Um, this is sort of putting the information into the hands of our characters now. Making yeah. them so about like the prison planet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Um, that being that like all of these uh Sardaukar from this prison planet and Duke Leto asked him, like, why do you think these Sardaukar are so terrifying and dangerous? Like, it's not just because all the houses have to send levies to like increase the power of the Sardaukar. It's because they train them in such a terrible and horrific and dangerous way. And I, when he is telling him about that, I love that he says, uh, no, no, Paul, consider the Sardaukar and the levies and the levies. They're still the Sardaukar. <laughs> like, that's a separate thing right. entirely. They're like, we don't call the levies the Sardaukar. <laughs> we know who they are. And he alludes to the fact that it's uh, it's because of the way that they're trained and how they're trained and where they're trained. Mm-hmm. Like if Seleucus Secundus is everyone suspects it's a prison world. All we know about it is the information we had from a hundred years ago or more mm-hmm. a couple hundred years. I think Thufir mentions that a couple chapters ago. Yeah. Um, what kind of conditions it is now and how they train people like what kind of terrible place would you need in order to train a ruthless like bloodthirsty killer now uh, that follows orders. That follows orders. Oh, <laughs> no, oh, before I forget. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, this this whole, like, little dialogue, too, I like, uh, because it's very much Leto being a conspiracy nut, uh, mm-hmm. where he just sounds like a madman for a second, <laughs> where you pull back, forget he's a duke, forget all that. It's like the History Channel meme, Sardaukar. Yeah. <laughs> the, alien, the alien guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Seleucus Segundus <laughs> and, oh, this alternate history they don't want you to know, man. <laughs> Uh, but as soon as you put the Duke in there and it qualifies it and makes it Credibility? a little more... It's like putting Doctor in front of a name. <laughs> yeah. And Thufir Howitt stamp <laughs> on there. I'm like, okay, I get it. Uh, yeah, there's this weird planet. Uh, I think even that we call it a prison planet is sort of like uh, that's part of the myth mm-hmm. where it's not a prison planet. Like, I mean, how would you know for sure? Like, no one goes there to check it out. Right, because it's a prison. It's like, you send your prisoners there. here, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do they actually send prisoners that way, do you think? Because um, yes. I'm sure that... I, uh, I think there's a portion of, like, uh, they deposit population on there. Right, or it's given to, like, the uh, emperor, and they send the prisoners there. I can't imagine that the houses would uh, spend a ton of money, like... Uh, on space skill travel, like sending people there. Themselves. No, no, I mean, and they wouldn't be allowed. Like that, they, would, yeah, that they wouldn't be allowed to go. That there would bring either. them in the loop, though, if they knew anything about it. True. Uh, I know. I believe um, from when I was reading over that starter car bit that every now and then, like population is deposited there. So, do you think that uh, those prisoners, that population, the starter cars sound like they're? I think they're. Uh, we talked about them being raised from a very early age and mm-hmm. how they uh, function and fight. Do you think? Uh, those people are basically just meat dummies to practice on. That they're creating these Harkon or creating Sardaukar on, and they're going to send them out. Paul cues in on that right away. Right. Uh, this is very interesting to think back to how Fade uh, took that information. 
Yeah. I don't think Fade ever would have put that two and two together. No. And he had all the pieces in front of him, even more blatantly than Paul did. Uh, but that was like the first thing Paul jumped to. And it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, you know, we're leading up to this. Remember the question that started this whole conversation. Which was, uh, does uh, does his mother know about the Fremen? About the Fremen. Right. So why are we talking about Seleucus Secundus this well, whole time? If you were going to create an armada, a force of uh, hardened warriors that grew up in harsh conditions, what other harsh world can you imagine these people would be raised in and could function like the Sardaukar? And we're told that Arrakis is just as terrible a planet. If not worse, maybe. Mm. I mean, just environmentally. I guess we don't really know much about the environment of Seleucus Secundus. Right, since it's sort of like lost in history. You're kind of like uh, left to the suggestion that like, let's say for now they're equal. Right. uh, Of like, just they're both awful. We know for a fact Arrakis is just a terrible place to walk around on. Mm -hmm. Like, could you walk on it for very long, do you think? The sands, with the winds? I could not. You personally, could I, not. personally, I could not. Okay. Tapping out. I am a water fat man. I would be dead in hours. Um, somebody like, uh, you know, a Fremen. Yeah, they can do it. Hmm. They can. They and can. see, and that—that's the thing, though. That that uh, colors how rugged that the yeah, Fremen yeah, are. Yeah, that exact difference right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, I'd say Gurney. He'd, he'd do all right. You think Gurney could do it? I think he'd do like half a day. I bet my day. boy Gurney could do he'd it. He'd do like half a day, and then he'd die. Uh, uh, and we learned from, I think it was Dr. Yui, that uh, they are a fierce people. Like even the children. Of, <laughs> yeah, even the children. They all, uh, they sing poems uh, to their daggers or something like that. Yep. Like, yep. yeah. They uh, compose poems for the Kinjals. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, they are. But yeah, Paul's eyes go wide. He's like, oh, yeah, the Fremen are the possibility. Mm-hmm. And the Harkonnens have ignored them. Uh, you know, we talked about they did not even consider counting them for their census. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of a lost cause. Now, and that's because there's just not a lot of them that they know of? Uh, well, I mean, we talked with uh, Thufir. He seemed to think there were a lot of them. Thufir thinks there's a lot. Yeah. You told me there was 10. I, told I you don't that. know what to think. Yeah. So where where are you at? I'm thinking... Well, if he's hoping to like raise an army to match the Sardaukar, which takes the entire Landsrad to do, I imagine there's got to be a lot. Okay, so you're going more than ten. That's the they've got to be they, more than yeah. more than ten. That's where I'm going. <laughs> they got to be shifty. I bet like there's a bunch of underground like cave systems where like there's a huge population. Nice. Uh, oh, why don't you throw a number out there? Um, what's uh what does Piter say that they're gonna send two uh two legions or two legion two? so probably something to match that maybe what would it, how big is a legion I don't know but that's at least a number we can figure out later and we'll uh plug it okay we'll see, we'll see if that matches up because uh, I will get there are a couple uh I think say we, ten thousand fremen we'll go in multiples of ten here okay yeah, that's good All yeah right. ten thousand fremen is what you're locking in mm. I like it uh and that's pretty good that's that's a good army number uh because Lido we've sent Duncan Idaho as ambassador to uh yeah our battle master did we say battle master in the thing isn't he a battle master or sword master no he uh he is a war master war I, master i told you that yeah uh um, battle master is a D thing that's why i was <laughs> thinking that dang yeah no he took over war master for gurney halleck so gurney could play guitar that's right man gurney's got the life uh, 
kind of. He had a sad start. Okay, yeah, he, it was a rough first half, but like now it's all downhill, Derek. <laughs> That's all easy. We get to enjoy the good life now. Oh, oh my, we got a whole book to go. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Maybe you'll get there, Gurney, one day. <laughs> no. uh, but so we've sent Duncan Idaho out, and we say he's a proud and ruthless man, Duncan, but fond of the truth. I think the Fremen will admire him. And if we're lucky, they may judge us by him. That says a lot about his character. That's a cool setup for Duncan. And the fact that and then we Duke end up with Duncan the Moral. Oh man, that's a cool title. Just to go with your uh, Gurney the Valorous. Yeah. I, oh man, I feel so like the vindication. Just, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, that came up on. in the next line uh, where um, they uh, start talking about uh, the weapons training that mm-hmm. uh, Paul had just had. Gurney. Right. 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 And uh, Gurney. Well, I also before we get there, actually, oh, yeah. I don't want to skip ahead too much because I know we did sort of talk about this uh, already, and I don't want to skip a beat on some of these things. One of which was uh, Paul was the one that said Gurney the Valorous. Uh, he's already thinking about who he would want by his side in order to lead. Like what kind of people you would need around you to lead. Like uh, guys from behind. Well, kind of, he, yeah, he says that uh, sort of like once uh, his dad says Duncan the Moral. And then I think in response to that, he kind of mutters Duncan out, the Moral. And, and then he Gurney goes, Gurney the Valorous. And his dad's like, oh, you named them well. Yeah. And, but he even said, doesn't he say something here about. Uh, yeah, he, he even thinks back. Uh, Gurney's one of those the Reverend Mother mentioned. Uh, are meant a supporter of worlds and the valor of the brave. Like he's he's still thinking about that. I wonder if he is gonna like continue thinking about like who else around him he can continue to sort of like bring or maybe not bring into the fold, but sort of like tag and categorize into people that he could keep with him and around him. Into yeah, into these because pillars. He he's going to be a duke one day, so he needs to lead. Yeah. So he's already thinking about that. I think. Very yeah, very much so. He's digesting all of this and. It must have been in that last one we talked about it um, where I told you I had thought with that quote from Gaia Salamahayam where she's mentioning uh, the kind of fingers and then she balls them into a fist and says like this is how you learn to rule um, that maybe this isn't a correlation to the starting characters where uh, you took the names from that chapter quotation. Right. Well, we knew so far. Yeah, we made those a pretty good lineup uh, for things. but. I'm now thinking, and I've never done this in reading through, so we'll, this will be the first time we get to the end, but like, I wonder how that lines up at the end of the book, uh, where we're going to see where Paul ends up, and does he have these people I around think, I him? I think we might uh, meet some along the way, and, and honestly, as we meet new characters, I want to see if we can try and figure that out before Paul does. Well, always, always kind of, as, yeah. as I encounter them, uh, kind of run them through these four, five little categories. Yeah, some reader versus mentat here. Ooh. Oh, boy, you're challenging the mentat. <laughs> I know. A mentat with prescience and true sense. <laughs> well, you know. Because <laughs> remember, mentat is just like, that is one thing on his CV. Like, you know, all of his thoughts are in the palm of my hands right now, Derek. <laughs> I, I feel pretty confident. Here. There's a second book. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> never mind. He keeps all right, never mind. <laughs> all right. Well, is um, I guess before I go on to that uh, bit with Gurney, then, is there anything else from this uh, little st- section with Leto and uh, Paul talking that you want to cover? Oh, just about the Landsrad and... Uh, Sure, how they would react if spices, uh, if spice sales or not sales trade went trade down and like how they would react because uh, Paul thinks that they would, you know, have Duke Leto's back. Well, you know, the no, uh, versus the Paul says, like, why don't we go to them? Oh, because like, you know, the like, uh, you know, the emperors of all. Why don't we go make a bill? You know, bring us to Landsrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes, no, we can't like because uh, they talk about two points. One, we can't do anything against the emperor. 
Mm-hmm. Wh- wh- you know, who wh- like it's crying. He wolf, said, she basically. said, like no one's gonna believe us over him. He's just gonna deny it, and we have no proof. Uh, and then on top of that, like he, the Duke says, um, uh, they if I cost them a loss, they would pretty much let anything happen to me. Yeah, like pauperize them, like they don't care. Yeah, like yeah. nothing as flagrant as just like all out war. Well, like, nothing uh, as obvi- flagrant as atomics. Oh, there's that. That, that's that right. is specifically the line in the sand in this world, which is again one where uh, we need to consider the time that this was written in, because mm-hmm. I think that is amazing and prescient that in '65 there's still only been one atomic bomb dropped. Two. And this ma- I'm sorry, uh, two. Um, and this man is hoping that we have still learned our lesson, you know, thirty thousand years in the future, mm-hmm. and have never done it since. And so far, we that is actually pretty solid. Yeah, that's an that's an amazing little kind of hope and insight. So that's like in this thing, the Great Convention. The biggest thing you can do is if you use atomics against another family. That is just the biggest wrong. All the houses will go against you. Even I think the Emperor will hop on that one. Right. Um. But so Leto says that's the one thing they would all be like, okay, that's too far. However, they could do pretty much anything else to him. And he mentioned specifically dusting and soil poisoning. Yeah. Do you know what those are? I imagine just like uh, in farming, like destroying someone's crops pretty much. So like me too. And there's nothing in the glossary. There's nothing in the appendices. I, I, what about the encyclopedia, Derek? I went hell and high water, Mike, searching for dusting and soil poisoning. <laughs> I couldn't find anything like even dusting to me like. There could be like an atomic or uh, kind of like a nuclear fallout bit to that maybe, but. I mean, like when I think dusting, I think like crop dusters. Right, right. But I'm thinking of stuff you would do from an orbit to another person's Yeah, the planet. same thing, just from higher <laughs> up. Higher <laughs> like, up. Yeah, I don't know. More dust. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it was weird. Uh, I just don't know what that's supposed to be or what that means on Arrakis. Hmm. Is there a way to contaminate the spice, do you think? It's so dangerous to get the spice in general. Is it really? Oh, yeah. There's sandworms, Mike. Oh, I guess, yeah. A planet full of giant worms would make it kind of rough, wouldn't it? Yep. <laughs> I <laughs> forget that. It's, uh, yeah. They So th- that stuff would be the least of your worries on Arrakis. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, we're highlighting that uh, everyone in the lands rad will just turn a blind's eye. Anyone could attack the Atreides. They could do, um, like, raids on them. No one would be really care. There's just like as long as spice goes up, I don't care what you do. Yeah, yeah. People, but down anything just... that would uh, violate the convention as a whole uh, yeah. against the emperor. So if the emperor was outright doing things uh, against the Atreides family. Then the lands red, I think, would and, and how this is, this covers uh, how the Har- Harkonnens are fighting as well. Uh, like the Great Convention covers all warfare. So oh, does it? Yeah. So like what the Harkonnens are doing is against the Great Convention too right now. Okay. So, like, uh, they would be... Oh, well, yeah, because they're, they're, like, making some under-the-table deals with the Emperor to basically wipe out yeah, some of the Yeah, houses. I just want you to say, like, it's not just... The Lands Rad is somewhat cannibalistic, you know? Yeah, this is not a great system. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Is there a better way we can do this? Not with a million planets. Oh. Uh, it just... Power, Mike. All right. It I corrupts, just, absolutely. I guess that, that helps clear up a little bit about, like, how the Lands Rad interacts with itself. Yeah, because remember, part of the Landsrad is a coalition that is aligned with the Emperor. That's true. And like I, I think the first time we talked about it, I mentioned like almost like a system of checks and balances against 
the absolute dominance of the emperor. Yep. Having an equal force in order to rival that of the Sardaukar. Yeah. By equal, I feel like that's not necessarily true. Yeah, with an asterisk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in quotes there. But that that's sort of a... that. Those were the the points I wanted to just sort of get to before we got too far ahead. That's right. No, yeah. Um, and I, I would have glossed right over it. Right, right, uh, right. And ultimately, yeah, like the Lanzarat is always dealing with these kind of local issues amongst themselves mm-hmm. as well as opposing the emperor that whole time. Right. Uh, but it's like the only venue any of the smaller major houses have to speak on mm-hmm. uh, and get their points out. But uh, back to our timeline, weapons training. <laughs> How did Paul do? He did... Uh, depends who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask Paul, it's like, dang. Yeah, if, uh, if Paul asked Gurney, he would have gotten a pretty harsh answer. <laughs> like, uh, boy, when, you're just not in it today. Yeah, and, you know, uh, you don't Hey, Gurney, it. how did he do today? Oh, he did great. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. When you ask Dad, <laughs> yeah. uh, Gurney is just singing praises. Lito lets him know, like, Gurney just talked uh, much more admirably about you, I guess, than he did. Right. Like, I love Paul. He's just like, really? <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, oh, I didn't tell me that. And uh, I think that shines through of like yeah. the relationship we saw between the two of them. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. you would expect. And then there's kind of a dark moment uh, settles between them where uh, Paul talks about. Uh, do you have that quote of uh, using using the edge? Yeah, I actually really liked this quote a lot. Um, Gurney says there's no artistry in killing with the tip that it should be done with the edge because Duke Leto mentions that. Uh, he said, you have a nicety of awareness, in his own words, of the difference between a blade's edge and its tip, which I just thought that was really cool, like just sort of pulling that up out of nowhere. Yeah, and uh, yeah. That, that is one of those you- lines that uh, Herbert lifted from Leslie Blanche. And Leslie, she is the um, I feel British oh, we explorer. Talked yeah, we talked, we talked about it a couple times. I'm now. sorry, it's been a while. That, that's fine, dude. Uh, she was uh, an anthropologist who went over to the Caucasus and she collected like the oral histories of this Arab prince who fought back against the Russians. And that quote was specifically from them, as well as um, Polish. Was that the, I was going to say it's the yeah, Polish yeah. line. That's the one he lifted. Yeah. That, uh, okay. Polish comes from the cities and wisdom from the hills is the original right. one. And but in this one, it. it's wisdom from the desert, desert. or sands. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Definitely swapping it out for a desert motif. Uh, so he, do you think, is there more in this book that he lifted? Because this is just the first couple chapters. Yeah, like, yeah. He, there there are a couple more moments. Uh, I think I have them like, marked in the chapter for when we get to them. Uh, and then I'll pull that article out for So him. those are probably fairly influential pieces in the writing of this book as a whole. Yeah, uh, her work. It was a, it's a book called uh, Sabres for Peace or Sabres of Paradise. Sabres for, wait, I, th- what? I think it's Sabres of Paradise. That is a cool name. Yeah, it's kind of and it was it was about uh what the Arabs versus the Russians. Yeah, it was like um a a Arab prince in the Caucasus who was fighting off the Russians. Eventually, he lost uh, mm-hmm. just because it was the Russian Empire. Right. They, I mean, they had more time and money, and just won out of a battle of attrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's where we get these little quotes and stuff. And uh, that's definitely the Fremen are a lot inspired from that, and the weapons in general. We talked a little bit about in chapter three, uh, the Bodkin, the Kinjal. Yeah, those are real weapons. Yeah, and those are all ones that you'd find from that area of the Mm -hmm. world uh, and have a historical value there. So the dark part uh, I wanted to bring up is that they're talking about that uh, Leto is telling his son one day, you're going to have to kill. Yeah, I don't care how you do it. It's like the artistry be damned. If you have to kill, you kill him whatever way you need to. Yeah, whether with the edge or the tip. Like, And it's just a fact of life kind of thing. And I think this is, uh, I don't know, the difference between uh, Leto and Jessica here, where Lady Jessica would shield Paul if she could. 
And Duke Leto saying, nope, I don't care how you have to do it. Just do what you have to do. Mm, yeah. That uh, that lady just got, I mean, she agreed that she wouldn't, but that she had that reaction and that right. inclination to. Yeah. I mean, I think all parents do. No, but but you point out though that right there, the Duke doesn't. Yeah. The Duke right away is just like, no, you're going to have to kill. Like, then you do it. Like, I've, you know, I've set you up to train with these people. You're training with these people. The, you know, that uh, tarnished uh, shield belt that he wears. Yeah. Like, he's done some combat himself. Kind of a lot. Yeah. Um, just experience from a very young age. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the Atreides. Uh, they used to be a lot softer of a family. Really? And they took a militarized edge uh, a few thousand years back. Interesting. Uh, I, I'm curious to learn a bit more about that, actually. Um, so uh, while this is going, uh, there's another thing that happens in this room. It's happened for the past, I think, uh, every chapter in this book so is far. It, oh, wait, wait a second. I might have an idea of what this is. Could it be some terrible purpose? No, it's no. not, Mike. It's the rain. There's oh. always rain. Well, it's the same day. It I mean, is. <laughs> but the fact that we pointed out we're always near a window for it, well, and it's something that I think it's important because we're going to a world with no water. I think it's it's one of those things where like it's almost like a goodbye for each character. They're all looking up and like, this is the last time I'm ever going to see this. Kind of, Yeah, they're seeing it, and they're also separated from it. Uh, mm-hmm. Like we don't see anyone. It's going to be kind of weird to say, but no one ever gets wet. I mean, I guess. I mean, like, yeah, but I mean, like, there's never like a pool. Uh, there's never. We've only been in like, like three rooms, Derek. No, but I mean, we make such an import of water before going to this desert planet. True. You'd think there'd have been like a, a scene by the beach or something. There's nothing like that blatant, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. right. Uh, where it is always this like it's always like pounding a window, or um, I think in the very beginning, Jessica is looking out that window at the rivers that are winding off uh, from her morning room. It's a little thing to say, but just that, that presence of water, uh, mm. I don't think it should go missed uh, throughout all these chapters. Though you're not wrong, we will get to the terrible purpose. That makes yeah. it, at the very end, the purpose creeps in. I, I love the terrible purpose for that. Um, but we have one little little thing that uh, the Duke and Paul got to talk about. Because okay. Paul, he turns into a little boy for a second. That's right. Yeah, because you know, we got to talk about spaceships, Mike. <laughs> We're going <laughs> there's on two things spaceship. to talk about then. Yeah, so, spaceships, yeah. Paul's never been off world. We've talked a lot about. Uh, this yeah, he is, asked uh, how big the the guild highlighters are. He's like, "Oh, you've never you've never done this, have you?" No, like, these things are massive. If you had, you wouldn't need to ask that question. Exactly. <laughs> so they will fit the entire Atreides like fleet, all of their freighters and ships, in a tiny little corner tiny. of one of these guild highlighters. Yeah, expecting with many other uh, g- groups of people. This thing's got to be like a small moon, almost like a Death Star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very much so. And uh, in the movie, they look like uh, big cylinders kind of thing, and everyone flies up into it. But like a Pringles can, yeah, yeah, uh, space Pringles, yeah, just yeah, it kind of looks like a big nail or a bolt. That's uh, weird. It's like a bolt going through space. And um, the Dune Encyclopedia, though, has a way more interesting description of them. Okay. And you and I are going to take some time this week and do a little dive into that. Okay. Because uh, somebody, they, um, like I said, the encyclopedia is all academics that contributed to it. Right. So somebody made the best case they could for how this ship would work, <laughs> what it would be built like, and stuff. And it, it was really neat. Suffice to say, they are huge and they are very fragile. Hmm. Because uh, they just fold space. That's it. They don't go into atmospheres. They yeah, don't really get close to they orbit. They wouldn't need a whole bunch of purpose. Because if you fold space, the time you travel is probably very short. Yeah, you just need to kind of make a field around it and move it. So I believe... So you I... need to get it into orbit. Or it doesn't even land. No, 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 no. It's so big it probably couldn't land. Yeah, no. Uh, the thing would just destroy itself. Like, so it's you, almost it's, just I like I don't a think super you can... mobile satellite? 
Yeah, I mean, Moon was pretty dead on, which would also be a satellite. Um, yeah. But ultimately, like, I think they have to keep it a distance away just from gravitational fields. Mm-hmm. Without that, because that could just deconstruct it right. or uh, damage it in some way. But that that's just the guild highliner. So that is their massive ship. Mm-hmm. They make up, um, oh, I had a number here last week. I don't think I got it with me right now, but. I think, yeah, no. At their peak of the guild, mm-hmm. they had like um, 5,700 of these highliners. Right. And uh, that made up the bulk of all their shipping. They had another 300,000 like frigates and transport ships and this and that. Mm-hmm. All of those together did, I think, less than 10% of the transport. Yeah, you. Uh, I think I recall that. And then that 5,000 number it's all does about the, 90%. Well, it, it makes sense because it, you want to do as much as you can in one go. And the Highlander can hold a lot. Can go. And they must just go on circuits through. Right. Like, uh, considering how many worlds there are, 5,000 seems like very few ships uh, to be sailing through the universe at any given point. I guess that's true. I mean, that's why it's so expensive, too. Mm-hmm. And so controlled. Yeah. Hmm. Now, the way they're flown is very intriguing. Because we got rid of the computers right. that did the faster and light travel. So don't you need like mentats to calculate that uh, that trajectory? Maybe. Yeah, let's call them space mentats. Spa- wait, what's and the difference we'll between a-, a non-space mentat? It means you need another school to be founded oh, at some point back God. in time. Because <laughs> the spacing guild, uh, they do their own thing. Okay. They excel purely at mathematics, mm-hmm. and uh, they are like a guild steersman is mutated paul asks if he is like are they mutated and this and that like do they look so different that's why we never see them right that is entirely true that is it uh i'm just gonna tell you they're uh, super mutated like, yeah they got like long but they used arms. to be people yeah I, I don't know how it happens i think it's in your life like wow you uh because you start taking uh they take crazy doses of melange and just raw or like uh pretty synthesized. much oh no yeah like oh like dang. they uh they are in a um Whenever you meet one, you meet one in the next book, Dune Messiah, okay. uh, this big tank rolls up. It's like 10 feet tall by like uh, eight feet across and comes in and it's got these uh, walls on the side and they all slide down. And when they do, it's a big fish tank and it's oh. full of this like um, orange gas. And then inside of it, you'll kind of see the shape. And when oh, it comes wait, to the edge, let me can, guess, let me guess. Oh. The gas smells like cinnamon. It smells like reeks of it. Pure spice. And uh, the guild's uh, steersman is in there suspended. Oh, my God. Because he can't be in normal gravity. So he's got to be Wait. in this special, like, uh, air. What's up? He can't be in normal gravity. Yeah. But they never, the Highliners don't touch down on planets anyway, so they're no. not really in gravity anyways, right? Right. Well, I mean, that's why he comes down in this tank. Okay. He's in this 10-foot tank, like, okay. floating in the spice gas. Okay. Uh, in, like, a little null field or oh something. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and they are semi-prescient. Uh, oh, like Paul. Yeah, that's oh. how they actually uh, fly the spaceships. They make sure they don't hit two stars. So they have to be able to like kind of see where... Hit two stars? How about hit one star? <laughs> Let's yeah. not hit any stars. I don't want to hit anything. You're right. <laughs> I set in the bar. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how they get, get around that, is they try to see where they're going to end up um, before they get there. And that is the magic of space flight. Hmm. So All right. no one's ever seen one of these guys. They're always isolated. Well, I mean, like, it's pretty bulky to move something like that, I imagine. It doesn't yeah. just do the rounds well, on the ship. I guess I should say the Emperor has. There are a lot of people. Oh, who so have some people them. do know. Yeah, they do. Um, but it's not common knowledge, and they don't uh, mingle even with, like, nobles, per se. They kind of do their own thing. 
Hmm. So Paul, though, he tells his dad, he's like, I'm going to see one. I was like, I'm going to see it. Like, <laughs> he sort of chuckles like, no, you won't. <laughs> one, because no one sees them. Two, because you are not going anywhere. Yeah, and uh, I think I told you before, I love reading that line more as an authoritative dad saying no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like a like, like a, a beeline in the conversation. <laughs> just, you will not do that. That like, yeah, because when you pay for guild travel, you also pay for guild security. Yeah. Like if um, the Harkonnens and the Atreides were parked right next to each other in that little highliner, you would be 100% satisfied that you'd be safe, that there would be no malicious uh, intentions. Or actions. There'd be malicious intentions, maybe, but yeah, no right. actions. Yeah. Because uh, if you do anything to violate the security or this treaty, this contract you make with the guild, they'll just pull your your shipping rights. Like, you can't travel anymore. Like, sorry. Have yep. fun with your planet. Let alone that, we'll still let people travel to your planet. Yeah. So <laughs> I hope you don't have any enemies. Uh, I hope no one, you know, oh, look. It's, <laughs> oh, you made an enemy by doing it's, that. It's half price to go to Getty Prime this week. <laughs> and that is how these things happen. Uh, there were a couple revolts where uh, the Imperial House basically subsidized so anyone could travel to these worlds mm. while this revolt's going on. How many um, instances of this contract being breached are there, do you think? Ooh, it's got to be very few. Right. Like maybe uh, the first couple were like as examples. Yeah, yeah. I, I bet. Oh, yeah. You're saying they made an example yeah. of them. Yeah, very much so. Maybe even like really harsh to begin with. Like everyone can go here. Like actually, it's going to be free this week. Yeah. I mean, depending what the circumstances were, it would be something like that or just the Imperial House laying down the law and just like unleashing the Sardaukar on them. Oh, my God. Cause, oh, yeah. Because like, getting involved in like really just setting the prescience there. Yeah. And that's always a constant threat in the universe and maybe one that the Emperor would appreciate being able to exercise. Because the Emperor, I mean, he, like he, he loves having the Sardaukar. I was going to say, like, he probably just loves to flex that. That's what. I, yeah. And he doesn't get a chance to as often because you, you don't if you do it too much. Lanzarad gets a little too united. Like you right. like them being broken up and a little disjointed. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also has a constant problem uh, kind of letting a little steam off of the Sardaukar. Right. Uh, they oh, have they want to do stuff. They want to kill. They're warring people, they right? They want to kill. <laughs> they have one thing. And they can't kill each other. No, no. And we can't kill this guy. Oh, So right now what they do is they just keep uh, unleashing them on the uh, edges of the universe. And every time we find oh a God. new world, like you just let the starter car go there for a little <laughs> oh bit. God. They pacify anything that's there and then they come home and they're good for a week. Oh my God. That's so rough. Yeah. Does, uh, do guild, uh, ships have like a, uh, a finite distance they can fold space to? Uh, um, like, is this in one galaxy? Is this in a couple different galaxies that this takes place? Oh, uh, no, we're, we're in multiple galaxies. That's a good. No, I don't know. Is it galactic or we're we're definitely interstellar? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So we're oh no, but no, no. no, Interstellar doesn't mean yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I I think we're in one galaxy. Okay. I think you're. Yeah, I think we're only in one. That Hmm. would make sense numbers wise and everything. Still, uh, we're reaching like yeah. If you're reading the encyclopedia, just uh, keep an eye out on that because I would be really interested in that. And I'll look up some wikis. Maybe oh, well, yeah, that would be an interesting. I don't think I've ever read a series that takes the scale up that far. Right. To a galact- like multiple galaxy like that. That is just mind boggling. Right. How, how do you map that? Uh, tracking the distance between two galaxies. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll look for that for you. That is really interesting. I think one galaxy is what we're going to say. <laughs> OK, tentatively. Oh, now. Yeah. 
and uh, he runs through. He kind of has this, uh, you know, these little childhood moments of Paul where he's like, but I can't be a Mentat. And he tells you why. I'm like, a Mentat needs to be taught from when the this first feels very that. Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh. What? <laughs> You're a Mentat. Yeah, it's like, they have to be trained from a very early age. Otherwise, it'll inhibit their cognitive. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm a Mentat. <laughs> In just that one instant, his entire life plays before his eyes. He's like, dang. And it's, it's a thing where... Uh, I, I remember, I love it the first time you read the book. It's really cool because uh, you're in the moment of it and go, ah. And then like every time after you're like, oh, that's a little, a little mm. cheesy. Yeah. Oh, just like, but we have these moments show up every now and then. Well, I, I already knew that going into this from, I think, like chapter one or two. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, I told you right off because I want right. to know how how fast Paul's mind runs. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we just get to see the fact that um, kind of let his dad be the one to tell him. And I think right. it's, that personal connection is the reason you want him to be this. this is, you don't want the teacher through fear to do it or Gurney to do it. It's a very personal thing. Yeah. And the fact that we had his dad, he stopped what he was doing because this, this is the purpose of this whole thing. Right. That's why to, he came to talk to him. Yeah. And we he, we know he's sort of like um, redone part of his schedule just to get here. To kind Part of, of it this. is because I, I think he's very fully aware that uh, after this, he's not going to be able to talk to his son really for like any length of time. Yeah. In a personal matter. If it is, it's going to be like in a war room or council or like doing business. Yep. Or, and the fact that like the unknown variables are going to start start up as soon as right. we leave. He, like I there's think, a sense of control you still have right. at this moment. Lito even says though, like on this, I'm going to have to try and get as much rest as I can on this highliner and trip because I'm not going to have any once I get there. Yeah. And so Paul accepts that he's, you know, I'm going to be a mentat. I'll keep on this training. And Lito is so proud of him. He just kind of smiles and, you know, thinks of like Paul as a Mentat Duke will be very formidable. A Mentat Duke. Mentat Duke. That is pretty awesome. And not just a Mentat, also like trained with the Bene Gesserit. Like he's got to know that Lady Jessica has been like teaching him some things. Yeah, he does. Um, I'm sure that came up in conversation once. They're like, well, like things are going to be dangerous for Paul now because I really screwed the pooch on this. Yeah, uh, and even if Jessica didn't tell him, it would show up in Gurney's notes. It would show up in Thufir's notes because of how Paul's muscles and his nerve reflexes yeah. all very heightened above it. Um, but in this last moment, though, when the Duke is smiling down at Paul, uh, Paul looks up into his dad's head face and he sees just this image of death. He sees a skull kind of superimposed on his dad's head. Uh, it's like an auspice had a skull look on the Duke's Narrows features. And then Terrible Purpose shows up, Mike. And Paul closed his eyes, feeling the Terrible Purpose reawaken within him. Perhaps being a mentad is Terrible Purpose, he thought. But even as he focused his thought, uh, even as he focused on the thought, his awareness denied it. It's not even just his awareness, his excitement about being a mentad. That's... It is, but that's not the terrible purpose. What now we got? I want to talk about this terrible purpose. Sure. Because we've had it in almost every chapter with Paul. Something will trigger it. It'll be like that terrible purpose, whether it's talking about like Arrakis or this plan in motion, like something keeps nagging at him. I feel like it's definitely this terrible purpose is subconscious. Mm -hmm. It's something that he can't consciously access or willy nilly dive into. I'm wondering if it's his prescience, his ability to sort of see the future that has to do with the terrible purpose. Yeah. And that it's uh, 
maybe you said that uh, uh who did you just say that uh, had a bit of prescience the spacing uh the sp- a lot a lot of people do but the spacing guild the guild yeah, that they have to have the prescience in order yeah. to even do it he's one of these people with this prescience but he's also been given this mentat training ability to run equations and information at lightning speed and also the ability to sense things in a minutia with the Bene Gesserit. Do you think all that culminated into one is this terrible purpose? Yeah, no, I mean, you got it right on with the first thing of like the prescience. Mm -hmm. That is the like uh, the the biggest thing in him that's different from everyone else. Mm -hmm. That alien kind of force in him. But we know it's present in all these other factions. Like it is something that everybody else or not everybody else, but other people experience on a sort of normal level. Right. But he's like almost a singularity in the fact that no one else or that we know of has as much training in all these different schools. Yeah. All combined into one person. Yeah. No. And I mean, part of it's the Quisatatric breeding line. Like, right. Even that, like, and that's even rarer than the everything else. uh, Exactly. And, uh, the prescience is a factor of that breeding line. Mm Mm-hmm. So everyone in that breeding line oh. has a fraction of it. Do you think that most people in uh, most of the guildsmen that have been mutated, they uh, were possibly in that breeding line? No. Oh. Uh, they are separate enough. I don't know where their stock comes from or how you're selected for that one. I forgot that we measure people in stock. stock. <laughs> it just makes me giggle oh, yeah. every time. I like, you got to throw that word out. Yeah. <laughs> That's just their stock. Some people are just are. Some aren't. Um. So I don't know where exactly they come from, but for the Quisaj Hadarok thing, it was very specific and separate, and it's going to affect so many of the nobility and stuff, and goes into the Emperor, goes into Duke Leto, goes into Jessica, like hitting all these major people have a little tint of this to them. But Paul is going to be just the epitome of it, uh, or at least the, the highest chance so far. I think it was how guys Helen Mahaya might edge that bet a little bit. Mm-hmm. Possibility is what she sees. <sighs> I would love to know what possibilities she does see, though. She doesn't actually explicitly say anything, and that just makes me so upset. Especially because what you said, we don't get to see her again for like for a while, several chapters. Oh. She, she makes an impression when she comes back, though, Mike. Good. She made an impression yeah. already. She's so good. Uh, but. We're going to have to wait for that for a little while. All right. We got we to gotta go on some detours. Yeah, tell me about this. So uh, you mentioned that, uh, well, I guess, okay, I got a couple things. You got a couple things? I got a couple things. Okay, tell me your couple things, and then I was going to tell you a little bit about the castle right. that we've been in this Oh, yeah, time. please. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so first one is the terrible purpose off my checklist. I think I said everything I wanted to. I feel very uh, validated in my my guesswork there. Yeah, okay, good. Um, no, you're, you're, you're keeping track. But uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the Baron and sort of because like every character we've sort of met or not every, but most characters, there's been sort of a juxtaposed duality with another character, uh-huh. usually a rival or uh, uh, someone on the other end of the spectrum. Um, we talked about like Thufir and uh, Piter. I think that Leto and Vladimir are definitely those two dualities against one another. Sure. And the one thing that like really made me think that too, is not only like how they interact with their uh, loved ones, but uh, just the line that Vladimir has plans within plans within plans. And in this chapter, Duke Leto says, you got to know where the knife's coming from and make those faints within faints within faints. And just, it just makes me think like how long have they really been at it against one another? Because like they seem to know each other very well. 
They in in another life, uh, they they would have been great friends, probably. Uh, if if the Baron, I think, had gone down a different course mm. uh, entire, uh, certainly nothing happy really happened in his life. But yeah, they they have a lot of things. They're both the heads of their households, mm-hmm. uh, representing those factions. They're, they both care for their family immensely. They care for their house immensely. No, not their family. I I, I yeah, I feel like I don't, I don't know how you could sway. Well, I guess no, because uh, Vladimir is uh. He cares for Fedorotha, but not necessarily in the like, oh, this is going to be my legacy. It's more yeah, like and how he doesn't care for um, the Beast Raban as much. Uh, whereas always, like, I keep forgetting about the Beast Raban. Yeah, he hasn't come in yet, um, but he's yeah, he's the older brother that gets passed over for the barony. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that would be the case um, if um, Paul had any siblings. I don't think they would be any higher or lower than Paul. Like I feel like they would all have a position and be, you know, a part of the family. Right. And that's just not something I've seen the Baron. But if you want to characterize it as what they do for their house, I think they both are very adamantly on a drive. I feel like most uh most of the nobles would be. Like it's all about the house. Yeah. Like keeping the house alive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's otherwise they wouldn't have lasted this long. Well, yeah, what's what else is your goal? Like yeah. that is your whole point. Uh, then they just go about it in different means. Um, but yeah, they're going to be... They send a letter to Duke Leto, sort of like handing off Arrakis and and, Duke Leto. and if you notice during that letter, the Baron did not take any shots at the Duke. Piter did. That's true. Yeah, Piter brought up everything like, oh, how like ostentatious he, he doesn't or like give how you a title and he goes might's a good name it's like oh yeah. he signs it duke of arrakis how cute and he's like don't worry about that like it's like it's above your pay grade i respect this guy more than i respect you exactly you ooh, you think that's true yeah oh wow 100 percent. no no like the there's just something about how the baron feels about nobility like he does respect the class system interesting so it's like it's almost like that classic noble mentality like from uh medieval europe yeah i'm just like I may have known you my whole life and trust you, but this guy is like way above your station. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, like, I'm gonna give him all this attention and praise and exactly. Respect. No matter what, I'm gonna do something for this nobility versus like any of the peasantry. Because hmm. uh, yeah, Piter is nobody. Piter, you Piter, know, what? Piter's, 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 Piter's somebody to me. Derek. You know, Piter is Piter's property. That's what Piter I, I, is. Oh. Um, I I've only got like three characters that I'm in love with. Derek. <laughs> I don't want to lose them. Trying to fight for those. Besides the Baron, uh, did you have another point for that chapter? Um, just in how they uh, how they rule and how they uh, they wage their wars, so to say, or their secret wars, maybe. Um, you mentioned that uh, the uh, the Duke has this uh, shield, silvered shield belt with yeah. uh, eight like patina on it. Definitely shows that he's been out there fighting. Uh, otherwise, it would be pristine, like mint. Like he's been out there occasionally on the front lines with his men. I assume. Yeah. But uh, Baron doesn't strike me as a frontline kind of no, guy. No, I do not think he... I mean, he has a shield belt. Uh, <laughs> it's not used in battle often. <laughs> I just imagine him, like, uh, wrecking ball his way. <laughs> <laughs> Flying in on his suspensors. Yeah. Just a las gun. <laughs> Going crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's the the Baron. I don't, I don't know how he inspires any kind of loyalty mm. in that matter. Uh, it makes me think of, uh, have you ever read uh, Machiavelli's Prince? Uh, no, but I know the gist, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there's like, everyone knows like the core, like philosophy core of it. Like, do you lead and by fear or by means. love? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, totally, that's the thing. But like, the biggest question proposed uh, to this prince that he writes this book to is, mm-hmm. 
should you lead by fear or should you lead by love? Like which will get you to the end in the best manner. And ultimately he does say fear, but it does, <laughs> which <laughs> is a bad it. example. But like, I feel like, uh, the Duke Leto leads by love or inspiration, like going in and showing his men leading the path. Yeah. Whereas, uh, the Baron Harkonnen, like I've got money. He throws that at a problem. You you're expendable. Go do this thing. Like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. You think they're kind of a black and white representation of that? The um, two of them. Yeah, I mean, black and white, uh, definitely two sides of the same coin, like I said, because, or uh, like we mentioned, they both care for their houses. How they do it is completely 180, though. Right, yeah, and I, I don't, I just wouldn't even cast the illusion that there's not that much complexity about in how they go about it. Like, clearly the Baron oh, yeah. is like this evil okay, I see kind of way. That. That's what I mean by black and white. Yeah, I gotcha. This guy is the, like, yeah. kind of lead by noble and honor, and then this one is maniacal and evil and vile. Um, so that's all I would mean by that. Um, but those are good oh. points. You've, you've been tracking them pretty well. Is there any other thing else? Uh, oh, yeah, I had one thing. With uh, Paul's ability to not speak, or not ability, his... That, uh, that like, mind block. Yeah, his that, mind uh, block, his mind control, yeah. so to speak. He's able to overcome it in this chapter. It's a huge thing. And he even says like it took all of his effort to do so. Um, I'm just curious how she does that and what it is. And I had a thought that it uh, might be twofold. One, definitely the voice has a part to play in it. Yeah. Her yeah. saying I think it, something. it's got to be something with the voice. But I think that maybe he, she uses the voice to play on his own insecurities or fears. What way? And that he is afraid that his father would die. And she uses that fear to sort of like as uh, almost like a linchpin in his ability to talk about it further. Hmm. And then what do you make of him being able to get past it? I I think that that is a testament to how much he really does uh, care and how he's able to overcome his fear of that. And that might be false. I'm just trying to come up with some sort of explanation for how she's able to do this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure. It is one of the abilities that the Bene Gesserit do not exercise again. Uh, it's just the one and done thing in the books. Yeah, it's sort of like I think it's used more as a plot device. I feel like that's uh, such a waste. Yes and no. I mean, it gets the intrigue going. Yeah, you're wondering what's happening. The semi mystical kind of thing occurred. Um, but it could also be if we were to rationalize it out, it isn't that different than just some form of hypnosis. That's fair. Which that could have been what it really was. But it's like it almost defeats the purpose of hypnosis. Like it, or maybe not. No, I mean, it shows, again, how different Paul is. Paul's so unique. Uh, and then, I I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the... Do pro- you think if it was any other person, they wouldn't have been able to say that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Do you think it was because it was, was Paul, Paul yeah. he was able to overcome it? Yeah, Paul, maybe any Bene Gesserit could, and since Paul's just trained Do you really it, think so? If it was a Revenant Mother's ability to do so? It depends what her intent was for that. Like, did she really mean to, like, full-on block it, or did she just need him to leave the Duke alone for a couple days until they got to Arrakis? I don't know. Because what was the fallout of him asking that question? The Duke didn't even really, like, absorb it. He kind of just bounced it off of, like, oh, you're a worried little kid. And that was, like, more diffused than anything else. Then maybe it wasn't her uh, ability, like, her saying, like, oh, you can't talk about this. Maybe it was some sort of in uh, inhibitor uh via fear i don't know i'm just talking about fear a bunch because of the litany of fear right right uh but i think uh he attributes it to her when he's talking to thufir duke leto no paul 
Because well, yeah, because well, Zufir assumes that like, oh, she really spooked you. No, no, I, th- I don't think Paul, it- in Paul's head, he's like, why? What did she do to me? Why can't I get this out? Because he can't ask Thufir the question. Right. Is like the first time we encounter it. And then you go on and then we get to this room where we're in Lido and he's still like trying to get it out. But I, I don't know. I just feel like uh, when he does finally ask him, nothing like comes of it. That ultimately it's sort of like, what was the whole point of that? Like a little stop in him hmm. uh, or just her exercising her power over him. But I'm, I'm going to go with kind of like, Something between the voice and hypnosis hmm. uh, for like why, yeah, why she like puts it into him and then he's so like inhibited, but he breaks through it is almost two stories. If I recall, yeah, was how so? Because I think we were going to talk about Duke Leto, but also Duke Leto's Papa. Oh, Papa Leto. Uh, Minotaurus? Minotaurus. We'll do... I mean, we talked about Minotaurus uh, last time. Right. A little bit. But yeah, I have a little little touch on how his story uh, came to an end. Mm -hmm. So... It's a terrible purpose. I don't know. Oh, it's always got to be terrible purpose. That one, I think we can tie in. I want a different name besides terrible purpose. I hate that. (laughs) I don't know why, but I just don't want it. Oh, buckle up, Mike. Oh, no. (laughs) All right. Well, let me let me side or take you out of here. Then um, we're going to talk about Cal- Castle Caledon. Castle Caledon, because you know, Mike, we've been in this building for yeah. a couple chapters now. So why don't we just imagine that you and I, we leave this training room, we go over to a balcony overlooking this estate, and looking down below us, you're going to see it's a two square mile estate this sits on. It's a uh, 500 hectares, which meant nothing to me until I converted it into square miles. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> I didn't know what you could do with 500 hectares, but you can put a giant castle on it. And uh, this place, uh, it's surrounded by walls that are two meters thick and they are 50 meters high. That's like its big exterior wall. Uh, It's called a, it's varicolored granite. Okay. So I think think it said blue green. Uh, It was kind of the shade of it. All right. And the castle is made of the same stone uh, being this huge structure. And have I shown you a picture of the castle yet? Yeah, I I, show you, you show me a picture, and we'll post it on. Uh, yeah, um, online. It looks dopey. <laughs> really, really ugly castle. Uh, I'm gonna give you it now. Why don't you describe it? It looks as, oh, as uh, best you can. Best, here. Like, just looking at the picture. Yeah, I know this is an audio format. But... Oh my gosh. Um, do I look at it upside down? Is that better? <laughs> um, it, it does look like it you looks can do the it same. Way. It looks the same. It's sort of like I would a, say, sort of like a tree. Yeah, with, with the like, roots pulled up out of the ground yeah, halfway. Where, but um, it's maybe I guess much more. Uh, nope, the bottom symmetrical. The top is asymmetrical. It looks like uh, you remember the cover from uh, Little Mermaid? Yeah, yeah. It sort of looks like the, the like amalgamation of all those little like little. Uh, like shell, like uh, coral yeah, castle yeah, kind of looking thing, just glued into it's each like, other. Minus the phallic like continuation. This, there. this looks like a central tower, but then there are just like towers that arbitrarily come <laughs> out of all <laughs> the sides out. and go out at weird angles and then up this again. Architect was on somewhat, like no doubt in my mind. Yeah, he's a comic book artist. Uh, I believe it's Matt <laughs> no, Howarth is the, the guy architect, there. not the artist. Oh, I got the architect for you. <laughs> oh, you have the architect's name? Yeah. If you want to, you want to get, you want to, you want to know who we can blame? Yeah. For this? Uh, this one who made this monstrosity? Oh yeah, he has a super silly name too. Because <laughs> uh, this is the Dune Encyclopedia, so we do uh, we get by with a little less work than what uh, Frank put in. But the architect was uh, Istvan Hvaladan. So they put Aladon <laughs> in his name. 
for Caladan. That's ridiculous. Yeah, so this is a, an absurd castle. Uh, it was ordered, built by this guy named Wesley Atreides. Okay. And he wasn't even the Duke. Uh, this was like the brother of the Duke, and he just wanted a little summer home. Uh, and was like, look, I don't want to do these dukey things. I just want to go live a nice life. So he gets this beach planet all to himself. And he builds his castle Gets on his it. whole castle built up. He was a, a count in the family. So his brother was the duke. Uh, his brother uh, was Duke uh, Phil- Philopos of Gallatin. Philopos? Philopos. That's a cool space name. That's a good space name. What uh, was that- the other guy's name again? It was Wesley. That's not a good space name. <laughs> well, I don't know. That was uh, Will Wheaton's character <laughs> when he was in space. Well, Wesley. Sorry, Will, but yeah. bad space name. Yeah, terrible. Uh, the wor- <laughs> definitely a little dweeby of trade. He's yeah. going to go. But uh, so they build this giant castle. Istvan Havaladan is this great architect who comes, and it's his finest and longest lasting work. Because he builds this in like um, the year 8,000. Right. So it's been up for like 3,000 years now uh, on Caladan. That's been the home of the Atreides. And when the castle was built, it was um, like 20 bedroom suites. The kitchen could cook for 4,000 like people. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a castle. castle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I realized as soon as I said it, like, damn. Uh, typical surf. <laughs> Dang. Um, they had uh, conservatories. They had plants from, like, hundreds of worlds. And he built a library that uh, rivaled the Imperial Library. Oh, dang. Uh, yeah. The Atreides were book nerds before. And basically, that, that library grew, and every book they could get, they put into it. Um, everybody that lived there, so the Atreides that kind of stayed on, they all took these um, academic vocations or philosophical or religious. Um, there's one guy who is uh, Orestes Atreides II, and he developed theories on the origin of Novi, and the- they were uh, not overturned for 600 years. Origin of Novi, like supernova? Yeah. He just, that was something he figured out, I guess. That was his contribution. Um, And then they just appeared to have no interest in the imperial throne. Um, And for a number of years. Until the year 9,355. We get another Duke, uh, Philopos. Okay. We're on uh, the, ooh, what's that going to be? It's going to be the 14th. And he changes the path of the Atreides forever. And basically, his brother, uh, the Count Garrick, was taken hostage um, by a rebel force that had attacked the planet Hestia. And the Duke is desperately trying to save his brother and get these people back. And um, the force that had attacked that planet Hestia and captured all of them, they were trying to negotiate with the Emperor and get... um, a flight over to Tupile so they could leave the Empire. They just get out of all of this. Yeah. So the Emperor steps in and he, um, the Atreides were attacked because they were loyalists to the crown. So they've always been pretty buddy-buddy with the Emperor. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Emperor sends a cryptic message of apology to the hostages and then proceeds to glass the planet. Oh! And the whole thing is raised. And nothing was left alive to the planet. Uh, from that point on, the Duke Philopos is like, this is never happening again. The barracks increased tenfold on the castle. 
uh, all of a sudden, all the luxury rooms that were in there start getting stripped away for more Spartan corridors, more training rooms are put in, and we just see the Atreides family take a slow and steady change until we get up until the men we know today. And that is why the Duke Leto has lived pretty much his whole life in uh, as a soldier, uh, and his dad before him, and his mm-hmm. dad before him. And that's, that's the castle. That's really cool, actually. That we didn't really cover last week, so I'm glad we, we got did. to have this like part two. I was like, I'm running out of time to squeeze it in. We're almost off planet. <laughs> it's like uh, we're never gonna like uh, follow up on this. This is so, it. Good catch. Maybe now there's a silver lining out of all of this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then, uh, like I said, we will definitely post this horrendous picture uh, that this guy drew of Castle Caladan, uh, as well as a couple of his comic works, because he is a good artist. Right. Uh, he does deserve redemption. Don't judge him alone by how he drew this castle. Uh, the other thing I want to talk to you about though today, Mike, a better story. Duke Leto, when we meet him, when he came into this room today, right, fifty-one years old. Uh, I always like to throw the age out there because otherwise right. we don't get it. We uh, never will with spice in the world. Yeah, spice throws you for a loop. Right, uh, makes it so hard. So he's fifty-one. He probably doesn't look a day over his thirties either. Kind of like Jeez. the emperor. Uh, he's the son of Duke Minotaurus and the concubine Becca. Not uh, a space name. What's that? Not a space name. No, no, it's B E K A H. So that makes it a space yeah, name. It looks like a space <laughs> name. Okay. I can see how you were confused. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Becca, she died in childbirth. So Lido, oh. he grew up without a mother. Oh. Um, and maybe we kind of see that expressed in um, how he behaves. Where he just grew up with Thufir and Minotaurus, essentially. Hmm. Um, And then um, Minotaurus, he had, uh, I'm sorry, Minotaurus had married um, prior to Becca. Becca, I said, was his concubine. Right. Uh, He had had a wife who died about five years before Leto was born. Damn. So there was this sort of like um, whole would have been within the Atreides line. Of like this whole family life that kind of disappeared. So after his wife died, he, I assume he didn't remarry. No. So I, th- I think he definitely had like a few years of loneliness. Right. Uh, and then would have brought on some concubines at some point. Um, Cause it's just like, that is part of how their culture works. Right. And then, uh, <laughs> then she died during childbirth, man, not catching a break. Minotaurus. No. And this is kind of a line of guys who don't get a break. Um, there's never like a just mother, father, you know, uh, what would you call it? Nuclear family setup in the Atreides line. Because uh, even Minotaurus's dad, Paulos the 18th. Pa- Wait, his name is Paulos? Paulos. Uh, so that is the uh, the formal name. Uh, if Paul ever becomes Duke, mm. he will become a Paulos as well. See, that's a space name. That's it. You got to say. Why it, can't though. he just be Paulos from the get go? Uh, I don't. I don't know why. <laughs> like why? Or maybe Paul's just a nickname that they use informally. Oh, you think you think it's shortened? Maybe. And that that could be. Let's go with that. And his real name is Paulos. Maybe I'm gonna. Oh. Nonetheless, so the uh, the Dune Encyclopedia does list him. Uh, he, I, I guess, is kind of spoiler, Mike. He does become Duke one day. He becomes a Duke. He does get to Duke, and uh, it has him listed as uh, Duke Paulos. I mean, 19th. I kind of assumed he was going to make it through the story because I'm very invested in Paul. <laughs> <laughs> like we've learned a lot about Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess I'm not like I'm not too angry You're about like, that. I have one. another name for him. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready to we go. We got a space name that's just the cherry on top. I'm all right with this. Now you got a second space name. <laughs> 
Apollos and Becca. Well, and Moadib. Well, Moadib, yeah. I thought you meant the ones you revealed to me today. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, Becca. I'm still not sold on Becca being a space name. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, but so like I said, their family, uh, it's been a little different the whole way through. And there's never been this kind of um, strong female figure, I think, through the Atreides. Mm. Would at least be a way to uh, phrase it. Uh, whether or not the concubine had like a normal station within mm-hmm. their family. Um. So Duke Mentor, he never had ch- children with his wife. Duke Leto did come along, and he did, uh, He, I mean, kind of poured everything into his son, very much in the way Leto does into Paul. And Duke Leto, I'm sorry, he's not a Duke yet. He's a little boy. Leto growing up under Duke Minotaurus, ah. uh, he was, like, right into the military scene from the get-go. So we have a little story from him at the age of 16, Duke Minotaurus, for some reason, says, like, oh, there's a big revolt going on. You go represent the family. Lead the frigate over there. (laughs) And so uh, Leto takes the whole troops over, and they are basically in orbit around this planet. And uh, this whole revolt's going on. The Harkonnens are there. The Imperial House is there. A few other major houses are there. And this whole planetary assault is uh, being planned. Okay. And they pitch it, and Leto looks over the plan. And he unilaterally decides, like, oh, dude, this is wrong. Like, we're not taking part of this. We're all going to die if we go down there. He pulls his troops back. The plan goes forward. Uh, Like, most of the Harkonnens get wiped out. Half of the Imperials go. So it's the Imperials, the Harkonnens. What were they fighting against? It was a a revolt. Okay. So uh, Stock had turned against the nobility. You wouldn't think that the Sardaukar would have been well enough to deal with that? Um, well, the Sardaukar are like, I don't know if they extend into space combat or if it's just melee. I think you still just need oh, numbers. Oh, is this a space combat? Yeah, like having the ships out there. Uh, okay. I think to some extent you'd have to just get through uh, planetary defenses and get down there. I imagine them being more brutes than anything. So. Right. So I think that's the difference in that like uh, once you get troops on the ground, Sardaukar are bar none. But gotcha. like in space, there's probably a little more even keel to everything. Hmm. Um, so like all those people get hammered. The Atreides are left shining. And they were among the only uh, survivors from that fray. They end up going down and kind of rescuing the day. And they secure the capital to the point where the Imperial reinforcements that arrive, they show up to find an Atreides and on, uh, in the palace on the planet sitting on the throne there. Everything's taken care of. He's like ordered everybody. Everybody's in prison, needs to be in prison. And they're just locking everything down. And uh, this is where the legend of Leto just starts to grow. His renown as a a soldier and a leader Hmm. uh, come out of here. There is an imperial inquest into this whole catastrophe. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they find that basically, yeah, Leto was correct. Uh, It was a flawed plan. Hmm. So he gets to kind of ride high from that. And he's, uh, his strategy and application of tactics earn him great renown. And he goes off back home and basically finishes his training with Thufir Hawat. Um, and somewhere along this timeline is when Duke Mintor goes into the Karita for the last time. The Karita? Is a bullfighting ring. Oh, okay. Because he is a matador. Whole family of matadors. Whole <laughs> culture of matadors, apparently. The, the Atreides are matadors at heart? Yeah. Oh, and the emperor, too. Uh, really? Oh. Yeah, everybody. We'll, we'll get to him in a second. But, like, 
Mintor goes in and uh, he fights a bull called El Muerte. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, the truth was strong with this one. Oh, no. And El Muerte kills the Duke and <sighs> impales him on his horns. Oh. They pull the Duke's bodies off and immediately they pull, uh, they do an adhesive on the bull's horns mm-hmm. and they uh, fix the blood on them. So Why was that up. their first train of thought? Dude, don't know. <laughs> Especially because that means that the bull was still alive, had these bloody horns, they fixed them, and then had to let that bull go. We need EMT and resin specialists now! <laughs> but the resin! <laughs> so, I think they were going to kill the bull, and Lido goes, wait, wait, wait. I demand the right to avenge my father's death. <laughs> Uh, so Lido goes to fight the bull. So Lido goes, they, uh, they refit the Carita. They bring in El Muerte. They bring in Lido. And he steps into the ring and he takes his father's estoque, which is uh, the bullfighting sword. Uh, it's like a very the thin thing they saber. Like hide in the cape. Yeah, it'll be yeah. like kind of bound up in the top of the cape. Okay. And he went out there and he fought El Muerte and he won. And this became sort of like a pivotal moment in, one, his ascension to the dukedom. And it let him show his bravery. He won the imagination of the people. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the first time there was no more duke. No more duke. <laughs> like, well, uh, maybe not the first in their history. Well, at least in that family. Yeah, at least since the nerdy guys. Oh, my God. Um, he, you know, he proved that he could physically and mentally do these kind of things. And, uh, most importantly, they, uh, emphasize that there was sort of like a connection in the transfer of power by the bull killing the Duke and then Leto killing the bull. Uh, it kind of like re-avenges everything, gets it all right. Um, after that fight, the Duke Leto never went back in the Corita again. That was his first and last fight? First and last. Was it his first? I think so. Um, he, they, like, they I can't imagine well, you just go in no, not no, no, knowing they, what you're they doing. They make a distinction between like fighting in the Corita and training as a matador. Uh, okay. So he had trained as a matador. He did that fight. Because it, it then says like he never went into bullfighting again, but he did finish training as a matador. The guy's smart. He's got a perfect record. Yeah. <laughs> stay on top. <laughs> Leave while you're ahead. Um, and then after that, uh, I mean, he's the Duke at this point. He's right. still a young guy. Um, he did not just settle into a comfortable life, though. He wanted to prove himself. So he served on the flagship. Uh, their flagship was the uh, the Von Atreides. <laughs> yeah. Not very original. Never. Uh, he was a subaltern, which is um, the, it's like the rank below captain. Okay. So I think there's like a little humility there too, where he wanted to learn from experience. Yeah, people. be like, you know, be in the barracks with everyone, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Get treated just like them. Like, don't worry about that I'm the Duke. Uh now, yeah, shortly after this point, uh, he'd served on the Atreides for a while. He's running the show. Um, there was a mutiny from his own troops on Ooh. this planet called Pink Scow. So he heads over there. And they gloss over this really quickly in the encyclopedia, which I didn't appreciate because it's basically like there is a problem. The people said there was a problem. The Duke showed up, asked him what the problem was, and then the Duke solved the problem. That is literally, that's it. That's all they give me. I don't know what the problem with like what they're. Why would they even bring it up? Just to tell you that he solved it. So there's a mutiny. There's grievances. He solved their grievances and got everybody back. Okay, that's dumb. Yeah, but it gets us as a good bridge to where I want to go next. Okay, in that so this mutiny happens again. His renown grows because he solved it so perfectly. All right. The emperor sends him an invite. I'm like, hey, I want to talk to you, guy. So, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. 
So he comes up. Is this his first time meeting the emperor then? I think so. Maybe not the first, but probably their first like private meeting. Okay. You know, they probably met on like a few occasions right, and right, like, like that. Like formal things. Yeah, because um, he is given, uh, or I'm sorry, he's just brought in to talk about this raid because uh, they, uh, Shaddam the fourth is so impressed with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when he gets there, Shaddam doesn't want to talk about the raid at all. And uh, I'm sorry about, uh, yeah, about the mutiny. He just wants to talk about the bullfight. He wants to talk about El Muerte. And what the bull that killed the old Duke and how he fought him and he killed it. And so they were only supposed to be there for like, you know, 45 minutes. A couple hours go by. All they're talking is bullfighting. All the aides and attendants are like, sir, sir, we have other stuff we need to do. Sir, there's someone meeting. Is there like a line at the door? Yeah, like it's just going on. I've got some like formal complaints. (laughs) There's some taxes. So they finally break him off and get him to walk away and do this meeting. And uh, it's not till afterwards that the Duke makes or the Emperor makes a remark to his staff, and uh, he tells them that if if they were all simply as correct and sure of their place as the Duke, the Empire would be a paradise. <laughs> Doesn't and, think that way right now, does he? Yeah, he's kind of coming to regret it. Uh, he also gave the Duke a medal. Uh, a few years after that, he gives him the uh, Cavalier's Cross of the Imperium. And uh, that is basically, basically makes him a knight. It was the third oh. such medal that uh, Shaddam well, he's had given in his Duke, reign. Though. Yeah, but it's like it's giving this honorific for, in battle, yeah. uh, you know, like a medal of honor in some way. Okay. And that's what gives uh, Leto the title the Red Duke, which becomes kind of his oh. moniker and what the people in the lands read know him as. And. Uh, this whole time, all these things are, I would just have to tell you, are like a double-edged sword. So every boon that the Duke has garnered, that many more people are jealous of him and right. envying his position now mm-hmm. and are jockeying to knock him out of it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And he never uh, settled down in this period. He was pretty much always out. He's doing, go, 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 right? Yeah, doing thing. There is a, a little side note, though, that uh, I think this all takes place before Paul's around. Okay. Uh, and that is that, uh, Leto would take in orphans and there would always be about a dozen orphans in the castle. And okay. yeah, you know, they just bring them in. They would get a chance to like do study, train a thing. And then he would apprentice them off to masters uh, later on. Why do you think? I think if I were going to express like just from this limited kind of stuff we've get on the, you know, we don't learn much from Leto in Dune. Right. Uh, I got a little more from this backstory here. And I wonder if it ties into his sympathy for people that don't have like parents in their lives. Hmm. Cause for, he didn't have his mother. Cause he didn't have his mother. Uh, his father didn't really have his mother and perhaps he knows what it's like. Uh, you know, we've seen how much, how little Paul sees his dad. That's probably something Leto learned from his dad. Uh, and something we can see repeated on and on. Hmm. So I'm thinking a lot of isolated young Atreides. So this is definitely before then because he never had like playmates or people. His we, own age. we know that Paul never yeah. had anyone around to play. So I think once uh, we're going to go into this next bit when Jessica shows up. Either that or he's still doing it. It's like, oh, yeah, we never showed you the orphan room where we keep all the fun things. <laughs> oh, God, Paul, they're the kids. <laughs> Don't go in there, Paul. Get Paul in the basement for a lot of. That's how you make a quiz hot how to rock. <laughs> But let me have ever uttered the words orphan room before. (laughs) (laughs) That's the orphan room. (laughs) But we all have one. (laughs) Well, 
That's me, wild. Let me take you. Uh, so at some point that ends, because like I said, we know that it's not around once uh, Paul's born. Right. So let me take you right up to the point where Paul's born. All right. Because uh, all those raids and stuff we were talking about, um, like the raid uh, when we went to Chusick, uh, Duke Leto red, le- led that one where we rescued Gurney Halleck. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was oh, all. Oh wait, he he was there, right? He was there. Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. He cool. led that one. Uh, that was all like um, twenty four years ago or so. Uh, and in the year one hundred one seventy five, uh, this is gonna be our fifteen years ago, all right. or sixteen, yeah, well, from where we are. Because we're at like what 90? ninety one. Okay, yeah. yeah. So sixteen years. Uh, the Duke's buyers returned from the Bene Gesserit School on Caladan. His buyers. Buyers. He had a buyer uh, who bought his concubines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he would go through his buyers regularly. Uh, if they really? Were, if they brought back women that bored him, he would fire the buyer and get a new buyer. Oh, damn. And then release the concubine. He uh, went through a number of concubines. He would sell them their contract back for a penny. Wait, what? So then they, so, would, they would just be free to go. Uh, kind of like courtesy. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's very much like, um, don't, I hope you don't think of it as like a, they're not like prostitutes. This is, this is like an established role. Right. Um, like, so in Rome, uh, this was established by one of the emperors in like 23 AD. Uh, they put it into a law and it is actually makes a lot of sense in a noble structure mm-hmm. as like, this is the release valve for your bastard children. So that you have you you have a way that like other relationships can occur and they don't disrupt the inheritance line. They have no claim on the inheritance line or anything. You just like these children are separate. This whole relationship is separate. Gotcha. Because um, nobility was king. Right. And so like this concubine, um, like so we know Lady Jessica is a very unique position of it where she's sort of. I feel quasi- like they, they tricked uh, Duke Leto on that one then. Oh, they most certainly pulled the wall. They pulled the wall. Well, like they had this plan for a while. No, it had to be actually, those two people. Let me get you to the end of this, and we'll see if you still think he was tricked. Okay. Um. So his buyer comes back uh, from the school. There is a school on Caladan, mm-hmm. and they bring Jessica back from there. All right. And uh, she was offered to the buyer by the headmistress. So that's where I think the Bene Gesserit are like, because we know Jessica came from Wallach Nine. We know Jessica comes from the Quisatadarak breeding line. This is not a coincidence that she ended up on Caladan or is being offered to the Duke. But everyone on the Duke side is gonna not know what's really happening here. And they think they're just getting a concubine. Uh, Thufir extensively screened her. He found nothing of, nothing of alarm. Everything was regular. Okay. And uh, so the buyer brings them back and the buyer is a little nervous because like I said like he can get fired if he brings back a boring lady right uh, this happens this <clears throat> has happened uh, what's uh, the before. average uh, average uh, like uh, career of a buyer career length oh man he probably doesn't get more than two years or something oh man so uh, let's say this guy was probably a little bit nervous that means a lady just got fired if he had right. to go get Jessica so uh, he brings her in and excuse me uh, he brings her in and they uh, introduces her to the Duke. The Duke dismisses him, and the him and Jessica talk for a little bit. Okay. Now, no one knows what happened in uh, like three hours where the Duke and Jessica talked. They were alone, whatever. Next thing we know, dinner is occurring, and Lido Ali- arrives with Jessica on his arm, which no other concubine had had that honor. Uh, oh, he brings her to the table. She is allowed to take part in conversation, which that one. Wait a second. Wait. Yep. That was a tough one to read. 
I'm chalking that one up to the time. Uh, but we will just take uh, satisfaction I, that yeah. Jessica was allowed in the conversation. What do you think? No, no, I'm just, I've, uh, I, I was thinking about this earlier when we started this episode uh, with the first line of, uh, like, don't worry about a woman's fears. Um, I don't know if it's, I feel like maybe it's not uh, of the time. I mean, it could be of the times, but like, it could also just be like uh, the character he's trying to portray from not having a, a maternal figure in his life. Oh, interesting. Yeah, with just us knowing that aspect yeah. of it now. Yeah. But I mean, like how much, I mean, how it's hard to make that sort of assertion with uh, the Dune Encyclopedia because it's not like technically canon, right? It's like a, it's like. Kind of, but like the six days to a week thing is also just very that's cleverly true. snuck that's in there. Um, I think, I think uh, maybe one of these days we'll have a, uh, a side conversation on uh, the canon of Dune and like what we should trust. No, we should and what we should. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's right on. So from this point, like I said, she's included in the conversation. She sat down in there. Uh, everything goes on. The goes on as normal that night. The next morning, the buyer is summoned to the Duke. Mm -hmm. He gets, Oh no. Oh yeah. (laughs) And he comes in, you know, imagine going into that throne room or wherever the Duke meets you. Probably just them. And oh, he, he must have already known what was going to happen then. Oh yeah, because he just the Duke tells him he's like, "You're you're done. You can go. <laughs> you're I fired. I, I, no. don't need, I don't need you anymore." Uh, the buyer's just like totally caught off guard. He <laughs> thought he had angered the Duke, uh, but the Duke kind of lets him know he's like, "No, I'm just I'm not going to need a buyer anymore. We're not no more concubines are going right. to be needed. Everything's all set. Uh, I do need a quartermaster to handle all the trade on Caladan. Would you like that job? Oh, damn. So dude gets a promotion. Like, huge promotion. Yeah. Uh, and he's out of the buying game. But I think that's like, again, this is a one, three hours from meeting Jessica. I don't need a buyer anymore. Like, that's this is, wild. This is just What done. impression did she make? Five months later. So Jessica's just been there. They announced that Jessica is going to bear the Duke's child. Four months after that, a child Paul is born. Oh! And the, and the Bene Gesserit tear their hair out back on Wallach 9. <laughs> we did it! <laughs> what is like, they're like, it's, and what? You had a boy? We were so close. Oh, God. They were almost done, Mike. They had one giant. Nine months of celebration, then like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the worst part. <laughs> no, he, Oh, it's like us celebrating at the end of that episode. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's like a fumble in a Super Bowl. <laughs> That's what that is. <laughs> at this point, uh Lido, he settles down to domestic life and kind of channels all of his energy into Paul and making Paul the like the greatest duke he can be when he gets to that mm-hmm. point. And all the while the Emperor and the Arconans are, you know, fitting the snare around his neck. Right. And that is the Duke story. Um, I think I recall, I don't think you mentioned it this time, but I think last week we mentioned that there is some uh, familial tie between the Emperor and Duke Leto. Yeah, so they are uh, cousins. Right. They have a um, a familial look to them. Uh, we'll hear Princess Irulan will bring up a few times. So does that mean that if anything were to happen to the Emperor, the Emperor doesn't have an heir, would Leto or Paul have some sort of claim to that throne? No, uh, no, 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 uh, not at if, all. 
if anything happened to him, uh, Irulan, I believe, is earmarked as the next one on the, the throne. That's the princess. Yeah. Uh, it'd be one of his bloodline. Like, uh, the Duke, we're talking cousin of cousin kind of thing. Okay. So, like, okay. So, very loose blood ties. Yeah. Thing. It's just enough that, like, if you saw a portrait of Duke Leto next to Shaddam the Fourth, you'd be like, huh, those guys look alike. Uh, okay. That I kind gotcha. Of um, I actually have a surprise for you, Derek, because I did a little bit of homework and the Spacing Guild. So they drop off the Atreides on Dune, Undo. but I know where they go after that. Ooh. Where do they fold space to? Yeah. Where are they going? They go to the Glossary Game! Oh, <laughs> uh, I was just waiting for that. Anywho. So. I, I feel like you were working on that for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've been a little quiet for a few minutes. <laughs> hey, it's worth it. I liked it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, so this is uh, this is kind of a special week because, Ooh. as you guys know, last week uh, I had a bit of uh, technical difficulties with that one button you have to press Just to make that, the entire thing work. That on uh, off. So we didn't really record everything that we wanted to, but we did play the glossary game. <laughs> we played the glossary game, and so I, you know, I, I sent these words to Derek, and we're not going to lie to you. We're not going to do the same two words we did last week. But we are going to share them with you and see if anyone else can guess what these words might mean. Okay, I like that's a good and idea. And I think we'll it. just leave them there in the nether, and then next week we'll reveal what they are. Okay, uh, give them a chance to look at it. Maybe not cheat. Everyone has the answer in their book, but you know, try your best. Take your guess uh, at it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, then we'll recap it up. Because I mean, we're going to want to go back next week anyway with whatever words you did pick. Exactly. Uh, see, I mean, if I do miss them. <laughs> I think what oh uh last week I got one and one. I think yeah. we're still 50-50 the it whole was way 50-50. through. 50-50. Yeah, yeah. So uh as of last week, I think it's uh 5-5. Five, five. Oh, that's cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um the words that we had uh and take your best uh or no, sorry. The, so the week before, uh the words that uh got us to 5-5 five, five were uh Ganima and Tupile. Uh, Ganima is something you acquire in battle or single combat, commonly a memento, uh, kept only to stir the memory of that event. And then uh, Tupile, we talked about in this episode, it's sort of that sanctuary world where you go to retire on the farm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Guild Space, like, sends you out there. They don't know where it is. They don't tell anyone where it is. It sort of has that stamp of guild security, as far as I know. Um, yeah, it's, was it? it says it's maintained... Uh, Invalid under the guild piece. Yeah, yeah, you got that right on. Yeah. Of like, it's a little pocket of sunshine hidden out in the corner of the vast. So uh, those were the two words. Uh, I think we were one-on-one. I think you got, oh yeah, I tricked you with two-pile. Like we talked about all episode and then you just dropped it last Right minute. over, yeah. But uh, now I, I feel like you'll never forget it. Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it's, it's in there for good now. Um, During the... Uh, the unrecorded in the lost episode. The lost episode. Oh, I feel. So, oh God. All right. I'm so upset about that. Uh, we had two words. We had um, ampolaros, a m p o l i r o s. Um, I'll give you a hint. It is something uh in space. Something. I mean, everything's in space, but it is something that like flies through space. So that's your hint. Um, and then the other one was. Takwa, T-A-Q-W-A. Um, I don't really know what kind of hint I can give you on that one. Just, you know, shoot for the stars there. But uh, 
I will say that it is uh, very, very valuable. I think that's a good. I think good yeah, it's, it's yeah. better than anything I would have thought of. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> hey. Yeah. It's like I don't know how you're gonna do that, but uh, yeah, it's good. But uh, so think on that. We'll reveal the answers to that next week uh, if you uh, haven't cheated already. But Derek. Oh. So it was uh, five five before it was. we played the game. We're gonna count those. I, I would like to. So if we do keep those, okay, we end up at a, a beautiful even one hundred at the end. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so then let's definitely do that. As long as we don't mess up again. <laughs> In which case, we'll, whatever. We'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, so we'll say we're at 6-6 six, six right now. Okay. Um, let's see what we can do with this week. I've got a word for you. I feel pretty unconfident with this first one but pretty confident with the second one all right so that worked out in the inverse for me last time <laughs> so i'm looking like the first one will be good the second one will be bad i want you to tell me what a spotter control is okay uh a spotter control is going to be um okay i think is that the position during a spice harvest who is the one who would be out looking for worm sign? I don't exactly know what worm sign is. Is that just like tell, tell, like, tell, you know, that a worm is coming? Kind yeah, of thing? you'd be like the one in a thopter flying around while the carry all is operating, keeping an eye out for worm sign. Gotcha. Yeah, no, you got it. It is the late ornithopter, which I mean, I think means the ornithopter that isn't carrying like spice or anything or. I, I, uh, yeah, that or just one that uh, some of them have uh, like an ornithopter can have a shield unit in it. that's going to weigh it down. Mm. If you take out that shield unit, we can fly faster. We can fit gotcha. more people in it. Uh, so probably it's this one that's like constantly scr- moving well, around. Strim down to be the fastest. And because it's going to want to be able to go out further and come back faster to gotcha. let you know what it saw. And we know. Uh, so, yeah, it's the light ornithopter in a spice hunting group charged with control of watch and protection. Ha-ha! You nailed it. I knew you would. I knew you would. Um, we haven't learned too much about ornithopters, but I think we are soon. I, I realized that we since we're leaving Caladan, we're going to Arrakis now. Um, anything with Fremen or sand in it, I've got to try and like pitch as soon as possible. Otherwise, I'm oh, not going to have wait, access to those words. Pace yourself, my friend. Really? It's Fremen for the rest of the book. Okay, we'll uh, see. All right, we'll see what happens. I don't really... But I, I'm glad you've kind of held off of them like, till we get to that point. I know that an ornithopter is like a flying machine of sorts. Yeah. So... That's what I've got so far. I think on our picture, you can even see we've got like little like dragonfly bird helicopter things. Yeah, it's kind of like a cross between a dragonfly and a beetle. Okay. Um, it just has a, a sort of a natural form of flight versus like what we're used to with like it's an aerodynamic. Not plane. as, it doesn't feel it, as mechanical. It feels well, it's, more. It's cupping the air. Okay. So like, uh, like a bumblebee technically swims through the air. It right. cups it and it pushes it. That's what this thing does. Okay. So instead of like gliding and using this whole thrust, it's thing, just pushing. Like we're constantly. pushing air and like actually these wings actually flap. All right. Uh, even though they're metal and like hmm. it's it's awesome. All right. All right. Um, second word. I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation on this. Um, hopefully someone uh with a uh with better credentials can. Help me out here. Come, Mike. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I don't know about you, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, Tahadi Al-Burham. Tahadi Al-Burham? Yeah. Oh. You said that way better than I did. So T-A-H-A-D-D-I. 
new word, A-L-B-U-R-H-A-N. All right. Um, I am going to request a hint. Okay. I do, okay. Want, I do want to like, I want to forge a little bit of ground out though. Let's take out something for myself. And I think this is a like, uh, is it part of a spiritual test? I uh, will say that it is a test. Test. I think okay. that's can the I, best I can, I can give can you. I get a, can I get a kind of a clue? Uh, let's see here. I don't know if I can. Hmm. I'm going to say. I feel like it's hard to give you a clue on this okay, one. I'm gonna, it's like a test for a rite of passage. I don't know about the context of it, to be honest. It's that odd. Hmm. Okay. I feel like this might be like almost like a prefix or something you can accompany with another test. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll give you like one like final answer, and then uh, I'll compare what I have and see like if we think you get it or not. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, maybe we're kind of we might be shooting past each other. Yeah. Here. I'm thinking it is sort of like um a rite of passage or um like a. Has to like um, get through something. That's that's the best I can kind of come up with. All right. What what do you what do you have for a, a sterling definition? So in the in the glossary, it is an ultimate test from which there can be no appeal. Uh, in brackets, usually because it brings death or destruction. So I feel uh, like that could be applied to uh, several different types of tests. But this just says that, like, once we use this test, like, that's it. Um, Mike, I'm a, I'm a fan of consistency, and I will take one point for today. I'll take it. I will walk away with a pronunciation I can feel more proud of than my French. And so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we discussed we do not know our French at all. <laughs> but... That's going to tie us at 7-7. Seven, seven. That, well, that, that was a good word. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm happy with the spotter. I mean, granted, spotter was very simple. I kind of knew you'd get in, it. In the vernacular. Yeah. Uh, but Ackle is uh, the unforgivable that you started with, so spotter <laughs> was a needed <laughs> remedy. Oh, oh dude, that, that's great. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, that's crazy. That's I think that's gonna wrap it up for this week. I feel pretty good about that glossary game. You're getting better. You're getting better. Getting better. You you got the two. (laughs) Uh, If you guys got a question for us, or if you know a wine we can afford, you can let us know on Instagram, Twitter. um, We're at SpiceWorld dot SpiceWorld Pod. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Instagram and Twitter at SpiceWorld Pod. We are at email at spiceworldpod at gmail.com. And you can view all of our uh, notes and our episodes at spiceworldpod.com. Dot com. <laughs> now, next mic. Uh, next mic. I'm going to get a new mic we, next we week. We hit this <laughs> bottle pretty hard. Wait, were you what? Hard <laughs> and early. Yeah, next week, Mike. <laughs> Come back. Chapter seven. We're, we're finally off Caledon. Finally off Caledon. And we get to go on the Highliners and... See what that's like. I probably won't see that much. No, you're not going to see any of it. Uh, you're going to skim right past it, and I'm going to drop you right on Arrakis. We're not going to see any of the... Nope. Yeah, he skips it. 
Uh, Why? Time jump. I, you know, man, this guy's got stuff to do. It's a long All right. book. All uh, right, so we will not go to space next time, apparently. So we're just, oh, so we're actually just, we're, we're going, going to Arrakis. Oh! Like, it's kind of a win-win. You okay. know what I'm saying? I'll take it. I'll uh, take it. Which, I, I mean, how excited are you to finally be on Arrakis? I'm excited just because we've been leading up to it, but I feel like once we get there, it's just going to paint how terrible a place it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can tell you, so you're going to meet your first Fremen. Oh, right off the bat. First thing you do is you stab him. What? Welcome to Arrakis. What? That's Paul what I, stab? Like, whoa, I didn't say that. I'm just telling you, first Fremen you meet gets stabbed. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> like, that's the kind of book we're in for. Wow. Okay. Um, until then, uh, I don't think I got anything else for you. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, thank you, Derek, for thank all you, of Mike. your insight this week. And bearing in the fact that we had to repeat this episode. We did. I hope it was bearable for you guys. Uh, I, I still had fun. I'm I glad think, we yeah, no, I think it was it. good. Yeah. Um, I think next week we'll get back to our regular cadence mm-hmm. and uh, into the flow of things. Uh, speaking of which, uh, until next time, the, the spice, spice must flow. Did it record? I see those numbers moving. Yeah. <laughs> I know for a fact we got at least a hundred minutes. <laughs> Put it to print quick.